bang, we bang. On the Empire Podcast this week, we go on pod holiday by mistake with Oscar nominee Richard E. Grant. And we learn how to train your dragon again with director Dean DeBlois. And we go into battle with Alita herself, Rosa Salazar. All that and somehow more on the movie podcast that didn't end up with three guests this week because of a scheduling snafu. Oh, no, no, no. Shut up. You're the one who ended up with three guests this week because of a scheduling snafu. There we go. Well, that's told them. That convinced them. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the Empire Podcast. We thought today we might be in trouble because of the snow that was meant to be blanketing London. In fact, one of my colleagues of such lethal cunning actually stayed in a hotel last night because he was so scared of being snowed in. But thankfully, he made it. James Dyer, you're here, which is nice. I guess. How are you? I'm good. It was Hotel Artemis, actually. It was quite an eventful <laughs> evening. Wasn't um, the El Royale then, was it? No, it wasn't that. Uh, half in Camden, half in whatever's next to Camden. I, I thought um, you had a card for the Continental. Oh, well, Helen, we can't talk about that. Also, I'm out of those little gold coins. So, oh, you know. fair. Um, oh, no, I will I'm, say a very disturbing thing has happened to me this morning. Uh, when you we came found to the joy studio, in something? Uh, <laughs> no, I have the song from the end of Twilight stuck in my head and it won't go away. You know the Thousand Years song? I am proud to say... I do not. You must know it. You must know it. Who sings it? Come on. Come on, Helen. I actually, I believe it is a very good uh, soundtrack because basically Robert Pattinson and Kristen Stewart just gave her their playlists and, and that's that's essentially the soundtrack. Really? Apparently. But yeah, I don't know it, James. It's, I think no. there's like, isn't there, and I'm, at the end of Breaking Dawn, is there not like a montage? And don't, don't look at me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Like I where, absolutely And it plays don't. that I'll Love You for a Thousand Years song. Well, it was playing this morning in the studio here and now it's stuck in my brain. Okay. I have the catchy song from the Lego Movie 2, but that's a story for another week. Okay. Next week. Next week, in fact. In fact. Uh, in but fa- thank you, James, for making it, because not only did you uh, struggle through the snow that wasn't there, <laughs> you went to the wrong studio, you massive bellend. I did, that's true. Yeah, and that one was better because they weren't playing music from Twilight. Are they playing it here? Yeah, that's why I heard it. I heard oh, it this one. okay. okay. It, was playing in, it was playing in the toilets, actually. Do you know what you need sometimes to knock an earworm out of your head? You need another earworm. Something like, oh, I don't know. Call me by your name. Call me, call me, call me by your name. Oh, yeah. That is your Something fault. Something like that. That yeah. is your fault, James. You've it's, made that that's happen. That's the empire equivalent of Baby Shark. I believe so. I haven't heard that either. Anyway. If we had a PRS licence, I'd put it on, but we don't, so I can't. You have heard her talking. She also struggled through the the no snow to come here. (laughs) She is our geek queen. Helen, were you disappointed not to wake up to six inches this morning? (laughs) Wow. Wow. Of snow, obviously. What did you think I meant? I I genuinely wouldn't have liked to speculate, Chris. Mm. Um, Of course I'm disappointed that the snow has not lain in London. Yes. uh, Because it would have given me an excuse not to go to the gym. And as it was, I had none and and went. So, Uh, obviously that was awful. What did you do? What what, what, what reps did you do? Oh, it was a circuit class and it was focused on abs. And so please, nobody make me laugh. Not that there's any danger of that here. I should be fine. (laughs) Funny. Why would you you say such hurtful things, Helen? (laughs) Uh, but good news this week that uh, Supernatural's been renewed for a 15th season. I you must know. be delighted. I am very, very pleased. 15 um, years. 15 years. You I don't mean, get that for murder. <laughs> you honestly, do. they... Well, sometimes you do. <laughs> sometimes. Um, they... There is very little good news in the world right now, if we're honest. Um, and it, therefore, the fact that Supernatural stays standing... <sighs> A little longer. Amazing. The nips are out for a 15th year. Mm. That's extraordinary. Again, I feel like I've explained this quite a a lot of times. Apart Mm. from anything else, a lot of their appeal is based on their extremely good taste in plaid shirts. So Mm. toplessness would just defeat the whole purpose. What if it was a plaid shirt, but with just the the bit around the nipples cut out? (laughs) So their nipples were poking through? 
Why would that be a good thing? Nippleless shirts. This could be a thing. Mm. Set up an industry. I have nipples, Dean. Could you milk me? Yeah. There's a line from season from 15. From yeah. season 15. Yeah. I believe right, Keith says it. Mm. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you're a Destiel or are you? Oh, Is there an episode where they come to London and end up in a zombie apocalypse and hole up in the Winchester? Oh my God, it's ah. the crossover we need. Sam and Dean of the Dead. They've already had a musical episode. They'd, they've had a Scooby-Doo crossover. Clearly a Shaun of the Dead crossover is the next logical step. Okay, this week's question comes from Twitter and it comes from at Joe Lucy Bradley, Joe Bradley. And she asks, in light of you interviewing Michael Palin, what is your favourite Monty Python sketch? P.S. I'm very excited to see you live in Glasgow for the first time. Thank you, Joe. We're very excited to be there. If you don't already know what Joe's talking about, we are going to be in Glasgow at the Glasgow Film Festival for a live show on the 3rd of March, Sunday the 3rd of March, with our very, very special guest, Sir Bloody Michael's Bloody shitting Palin himself. I'm not sure that's the correct form of his name. I think that's what the Queen's going to say when she drops a sword on his shoulder and that's legally binding. Again, Chris, as your lawyer, I don't think it is. No, okay, fair enough. I I stand corrected. But yeah, Michael Palin is going to be on the show. It's amazing. And um, even more amazing is that somehow that show has sold out already. But uh, there may be tickets around the time. There may be returns and stuff. But we're very, very excited to be up in Scotland for that and uh, see you guys then. And of course, next week's our live show in London. (laughs) Lots of stuff going on. Lots of stuff going on. But anyway, the question from Joe Bradley. Uh, This is going to be a fun one because James doesn't know or really like Monty Python that well. Or Uh, comedy or joy. I I feel that this question is geared to steer me further into character and on brand, which is (laughs) a shame. But as as you say, I don't enjoy sketch comedy at all. I feel it to be a waste of life. And I don't know of any Monty Python sketches that are funny. So I will find this tricky to answer. I do enjoy The Life of Brian. I think that's a good good little film. You are Um, are a dribbling imbecile. (laughs) You really are. It's just a waste of skin. How? We've talked about your your weird anti-sketch comedy thing on yeah. the podcast before. I don't really want to get into that right now. That's fair. But you have said Life of Brian, and that's good, because that's a bit of a lifeline. Mm. But I, I want to dig a little bit into the Monty Python thing, because as a person of a certain age, you would have grown up watching this stuff, or you should have grown up with people quoting this in the playground incessantly. Yes, it irritated so, me. How did it not... Okay, okay. Let's just get past that because it'll make me mad. Uh, I had the soundtrack, the Monty Python Sing soundtrack, because someone bought it for me. Okay, it had a song about a penis on it. The penis song. I found that slightly humorous. Okay, that's good. They Steady were, on, James. Come on. They will be Don't gratified. Go over the top. We're not letting James anywhere near Michael Palin, by the way. When we, when we get up <laughs> well, to in case I sing the penis song at him. No, and just in case you you go over to him and say something like, "I find you mildly funny," <laughs> and you know, but all the stuff that you did in the nineteen sixties is worthless. Life of Brian is interesting because I am going to allow, for the purposes of this, this is, after all, a movie podcast, mm. uh, I am going to allow the Python films oh, good. in ah, this so as well. I can play. Because essentially, it's certainly, certainly meaning of life, but really, Holy Grail and Life of Brian are just a bunch of sketches strung together around the barest bones of a plot. So if you think about Life of Brian, what do the Romans ever do for us? That's an amazing piece of sketch writing, yes. uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna throw that one in there. But uh, James, you've you've seen like have you not seen Holy Grail? I have seen Holy Grail. Yeah, Holy I, Grail's got amazing yeah, sketches it, all the way through. It doesn't it, it doesn't do the same thing. For, I think because I have a theology degree, so I'm very into all that stuff. So Life of Brian appeals to me on a number of levels. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy the satire of it, uh, but it's also very funny. What what have the Romans ever done for us? Genuinely very funny, mm-hmm. and it's within narrative context, so I can get away in my head with saying it's not a sketch. Mm-hmm. So you know that works for me. 
Biggest like Dickus. Biggest Dickus, also very funny. But again, I mean, it's it? funny because we've built up to it and it's part of a story. If you just presented that as a sketch in isolation, I wouldn't find it funny. But is it built up to? Because like we so. meet that character in that one scene we do. and it's a self-contained sketch. But you're already there, sort of, you've, you've gone there, you're in that world, you're with those characters, you're in the right headspace. Like, it has engaged mm-hmm. me up until that point, therefore, thereby, I, I, you know, I accept it. Helen, you're a barrister, how is he doing, how's the defence going here? I, I, mean, I, think he's, I think he's floundering a bit. It's, it's the same issue I have with procedural TV, there's a promiscuousness to sketch comedy that bothers me. I prefer to be in a committed comedy relationship with characters. I, I don't know what to do with that. But the Helen. thing is, the, thing, the nice thing about sketch comedy is it's an, it's an idea taken to just the right length. That, that's, yeah. that's, that's the dream. It's like if you have a funny idea but it's just yeah. a one-off funny thing, then you just do it once and you don't milk it. And that's yeah. sometimes right. We're still talking good. about sex, right? I mean, apparently you are. But, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoy some of them. Um, I have a friend from college, hi, Ian, who is obsessed with them and used to basically quote them all at me on a daily basis until <laughs> I would sort of warm me down. Um, uh, so, yeah, but I, I mean, obviously the Spanish Inquisition, I very much enjoy. Nobody uh, expected Helen to say the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> No, um, no one's come through well, the door. Surprise is one of their main <laughs> references, you see. Um, but no, I just I, I I love that kind of pseudo intellectual comedy. Uh, I think my the favourite that's that sprang to mind when I thought of this question is actually the philosophers' football match. Yes, <laughs> where they just walk around the field thinking great thoughts mm-hmm. until the last minute of the game, yeah. which is probably better than most football games. I would no, say. So. no, Helen. Mm-hmm. Incorrect. You're incorrect in that assumption. But uh, yeah, what about the films? Do the, the films connect with you? Yeah, I, I also enjoy Life of Brian. I like the Holy Grail. I enjoy mm. the insults in the Holy Grail very, very much. Oh, my God, the French taunter. Yep, yep. <laughs> your father was a hamster and your mother smelt of elderberries. <laughs> That's the one that says, I fart in your general direction, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is, yes. See, I got that reference. Yeah, and and the, the whole uh, question of, you know, reasonable forms of government that's raised oh. in that as well. I just love it. Yeah, so good. So and good. I have actually run around with coconut halves round Dune Castle in Scotland. <laughs> um, they have coconut halves in the gift shop. If you visit Dune Castle, Do you they? can ask and they will lend you the coconut <laughs> halves and you can clap, clap That's them around the castle. Or at least they did as of a few years ago. I hope they still do. That's it. That is incredible. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I prefer Holy Grail to Life of Brian, but Life of Brian is just, there's some amazing stuff. Also the scene where he is painting graffiti on the wall uh, a centurion comes up to him and he thinks he's in trouble but the centurion starts correcting his grammar it's <laughs> like <laughs> so, what did you learn Latin that's it's, Cleese. Yeah, it's Cleese, yeah. very good I think Cleese probably wrote that as well Cleese and Chapman probably wrote that together but uh, if you're going for sketches Monty Python sketches Jimbo you need to check out things like the cheese shop sketch which is glorious Python I don't did, know that Python were, would, would do these incredible things they would do these incredible two person sketches so they would do things like the dead parent sketch which oh, yeah. everybody knows mm. which is fantastic they would do things like the argument sketch yes. where Palin goes into uh, have an he pays to have an argument with Cleese and that's just incredible um, but the cheese shop sketch which again is Palin and uh, Cleese um, I'm not sure who wrote it. I'm not sure because there were writing teams. Eric Idle yeah. was on his own and Palin and Terry Jones were a writing team and, and uh, Cleese and Graham Chapman were a writing team and then Terry Gilliam was doing whatever he was doing with the animation stuff. So I'm not sure who wrote it, but the cheese shop sketch is amazing. Basic premise is John Cleese goes into a cheese shop. Palin is the, the owner of the cheese shop. Cleese wants some cheese. There is no cheese to be had. And it is an amazing list sketch where Cleese just lists cheese after cheese after cheese. <laughs> and Palin is just this wall of no. It's amazing. And 
very Brexit as well. <laughs> <laughs> in a weird way, now I think about it, it is absolutely incredible. I did watch a bit of Flying Circus uh, last year. Dan Jolin of this parish wrote a very good piece on Flying Circus for the very first issue of Pilot TV magazine, which also has a popular podcast. Um, Never heard of it. But he he went through it and he did the, the best uh, Flying Circus sketches and he did sort of Anatomy of a Python where he talked about all the pythons and what they contributed to the show and it made me rewatch it a bit. And it is clever, but it's, it's that kind of surrealist comedy is, again, it's another type of comedy to add to the list of comedies that I don't <laughs> find funny, but I, it just doesn't it's work for me. Of, and I think in the, in the films, the, uh, the comedy is less... Well, certainly in Life of Brian, it's less surrealist. Like that, that real batshitness, I don't think quite. <laughs> you know, there's a divide in in the Pythons themselves between oh. the sort of the Oxford and the Cambridge. I've heard about this because Glees is Cambridge, isn't he? It's basically one 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 group is like completely off the wall, and the yeah. other group is slightly more. Yeah. Same. So maybe that's my, my like yeah. half the Python like and not the, the other Pythons, half. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good. That's good knowledge. Thank but you. That's the beauty of it because Cleese and Chapman were probably the surrealists to the group, but at the same time, Palin and Jones could be surreal. Mm. Idol could be surreal as well. How many Pythons have, have you? Have we collected them all? Have you, have you, have you? No, I'm not even close. I don't think. Okay. Uh, just. Please, I think. Didn't we send... Who was it who went to do them all? Was it Ali? Ali Plum. Ali Plum went yeah. and he did... The, uh, that was the greatest day of his life. He did all the Pythons. I know. I, for their uh, tour, that they, their uh, reunion tour. But yeah, I've done, I've done Cleese. I think that's... I might have met Eric Idle at one point. I've met Terry Gilliam as well. Mm, Gilliam, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Cleese is the one I'm missing from my set. I haven't spoken to Cleese. But uh, I did a... I hosted a press conference a few years ago for the Graham Chapman uh, documentary that they did. And it was Jones... Um, and Palin I think it was just Jones and Palin and they brought Graham Chapman along with them in the form of a cardboard cutout (laughs) (laughs) and he just sat there lovely so there we go Pythons Michael Palin in the person in the person in the person person. Michael Palin in the person the full Palin I might try and do the cheese shop sketch with him yeah, you might. God def- help us, please. No, keep me off the stage for that one. I think. <laughs> All right, if you want to have your question read out in the Empire Podcast, just like Joe Bradley did, much to her satisfaction, you can get in touch with us via a number of methods. We are on Twitter as at Empire Magazine. Use the hashtag Empire Podcast, or chances are we won't see it. We're on Facebook as well as Empire Magazine, and you can email us podcast at empireonline.com. How exciting! Should we have a guest? Yeah, let's have a guest. Rosa Salazar is the star of next week's blockbuster, Alita, Battle Angel, a movie many, many years in the making. It was going to be a James Cameron film at one point. Cameron's dabs are all over the thing. He is a producer and a writer, but Robert Rodriguez is the director, and it is a futuristic sci-fi tale in which Salazar plays the title character, Alita, a cyborg who is brought back to life by Christoph Waltz, but doesn't really know where she came from or why, but turns out to be a deadly killing machine. Much like Helen. Much like Helen. So we sent along our very own half-human, half-robot killing machine, Helen O'Hara, yep. to have a chat with her earlier on this week. Was she fun, Helen? I haven't heard it yet. Uh, she was a lot of fun. She, um, When I told her, you know, I give her my, our usual podcast spiel, which is you're free to curse, you're free to go off on tangents, Fuck, you yeah. know, do whatever. And, uh, and she visibly was pleased by that and uh, took full advantage, as you'll hear. Excellent. Ooh, wow. Okay. I approve. Here's the potty-mouthed, foul-mouthed <laughs> disgrace of a human being that is Rosa Salazar. Who is a delight. Who is a delight. Thank Sorry, you. I misread that. I, my notes are all over the place today. She is a delight. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast. We're joined Hi. today by Rosa Salazar for Alita Battle Angel, which I keep going to call Battle Angel Alita because I've been writing about this film being in the process of being made ever since I 
started in journalism. Yes. It's been a long time. Yes, it has. I'm <laughs> so thankful for divine timing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you would have been far too young, sort of 16, 17 years yeah. ago. So. I start to sweat when they talk about uh, how it was going to be made um, decades ago. I'm like, God, oh, thank God it wasn't. <laughs> thank God for the technology. So when did you first hear about it? What was your first memory of it? Well, my agent, uh, Jason, called me and he said, hey, uh, would you like to uh, read for a role in uh, James uh, James Cameron, Robert Rodriguez production? And I said, absolutely not. You're fired. Um, no, I said, those... Those two are doing, uh, they're teaming up. Uh, yeah, of course, I would love to. Um, and he said it's called uh, Alita, Battle Angel. And then I really, uh, I really needed to get in there. Um, the beautiful thing about this project, even from the start, even before I walked into the audition room, is that we were given a script to read. A lot of these Ooh. big movies, they're very secretive. You know, uh, Star Wars will be called Dolphin yeah. or something <laughs> like that, you know, and uh, they give you fake sides. So you don't really know um, the X you're trying to land on because mm-hmm. you don't know what the story is. And that's what um, what these guys are all about. They're all about the story. So they're they give you a script to read. What a novelty. Saying, hey, um, you need to know the story in order to do these sides. So yeah. I got to read the script and already it was, you know, it was uh, such a high class production even before I walked into the audition room. That's awesome. Did it change a lot from that point? The script? Yeah. No. Oh. Here's the thing about visionaries. Um, they have a vision. <laughs> they stick to the vision. They shoot the vision. And then they birth the, vig- the vision. So it's not a case of, you know, halfway through going, ah, oh, you know what? We're going to change her dramatically. Or we're going to change the story dramatically. They they worked really well Jim worked really hard on the initial script which was far too long uh, about 60 pages too long (laughs) Um, and then Robert took over free of charge said I I just want to see this movie get made and he um, carved out the script that we shot and they got it into that position before it was even handed to us so right it wasn't like a, a, you know, tentative working, you know, title working script. It was the script yeah. that we shot. Yeah. And I love, love, love that. that. Yeah, that's a really luxurious position to be in these days. Absolutely. Absolutely. You feel safe. Yeah. I know what, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Which is nice. Yeah. So um, uh, tell me about Alisa herself, because she, she goes, I mean, I don't want to get into spoilers, obviously, mm-hmm. although I am doing a spoiler pod with the other two. We'll, we'll, we'll oh, get okay, into great. that there. But... Um, she goes through such a journey um, and, and changes so much because she wakes up, you know, her mind is essentially blank. She doesn't know who she is. She doesn't know who anybody else is. Right. Um, and and there's several stages, aren't there, to her sort of development? Absolutely. So Alita is, like you said, um, she's uh, suffering from amnesia. She wakes up. I don't know where I am, what I am, who I am what time I am uh, and she is feeling really confused um, there's a world of emotions uh, going on inside of her um, can you imagine feeling so lost so she's incredibly lost in the beginning and grows exponentially through the film so for me it was a matter of making sure each state step in her development was completely pitch perfect um, so 
what I did is I transposed uh, the metamorphosis from girl to womanhood um, that uh, fortunately and unfortunately I went through myself um, because that's how I saw Alita's progress. I saw her going from a doll body, a body she felt, um, you know, uh, uh, uncomfortable and bursting out of the seams. Uh, anyone who's been a, a 13 or 14 year old girl knows how foreign her own body can feel sometimes. Um, to sort of a, a more rebellious uh, awakening um, uh, of, of a woman uh, around 15, 16, 17, um, sort of trying to take matters into her own hands, throwing herself into um, crazy, dangerous circumstances. Yes. Very crazy, very dangerous. Very crazy, very dangerous. <laughs> to finally uh, finding her her body, which is very quite literally in the movie her body Mm -hmm. the urn berserker body um and thus she is transformed into a woman and she even says to hugo uh, i feel more me Mm -hmm. so for me it was a clear line from a girl to woman and that sort of kept me on track when i was developing her throughout the film yeah um, so I mean, tell me about like sort of physically filming it because um, you're in Texas, which I'm guessing is it's kind of slightly off the filmmaking track even nowadays. You know, it's beautiful to shoot in Texas. I loved all of the the crew. Um, it was beautiful shooting on Roberts uh, at his studio, Troublemaker Studio. Even by the name, you're like, fuck <laughs> yes, um, I'm a troublemaker. Uh, you know, he's got some cars from Planet Terror parked out front. He's got bits and pieces of uh, of um, you know, Titty Twister, the bar from Dust Till Dawn. Uh, it, there's so it's rife with history, filmmaking yeah. history. Um, and then on his back lot, he built 97,000 square feet of actual practical city. Um, and this is Iron City. So it really didn't feel like we were in Austin, and except for the off days, which sure. really felt like Austin, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, which coincidentally feels like a hangover uh (laughs) and a bellyache yeah isn't that crazy something in the air something in the alcohol um but it really felt like we were in iron city Mm. it felt like we had you know taken a flight to this mythical place in panama city um but i I loved shooting shooting out there it was extremely hot Mm -hmm. and i was wearing a wetsuit type material a very intimate suit um so it was that was uh, that was a challenge. Mm, yeah. yeah, I was going to ask what you had to wear. Was it literally just dots on the face, or were, were we talking? We're talking the full the shebang. Full. Wow, we're talking. Uh, we're talking about thirty-seven dots on the face, um, m- markers that yep. are tracking uh, basically the muscles that are moving in your mm-hmm. face. Every pull, um, every indent. Uh, they're really capturing um, how your face moves mm. when it is emoting uh, then you're wearing a do-rag with all of your hair in it uh, a helmet on top which is quite um, snug so you can get these migraines throughout the day um, clipped under the chin so very very sexy um, <laughs> And then you have a boom coming out of the side of the helmet with two high-definition cameras on it. You cannot hide Mm. from these cameras. In fact, these cameras are... This is a height of technology for the performance capture suit. On Avatar, just to give you an idea, Sam and Zoe wore one camera, not even a high-definition camera, one camera. Um, And I had two high-definition cameras. So 
what you see is what you get. Um, you cannot hide from those cameras. Uh, and you are always on camera. Mm. So every take, every piece of coverage, even off to the side when someone else is filming their scene, you are on camera. Um, then um, there are a couple things Velcroed to your helmet. You've got a mic pack, a battery, a fan, running cables down to your back where you have another fan and a recorder and another battery and running cables down to your thigh um, with another battery. And <laughs> You're getting the idea. Wow. Um, so uh, in the suit, there are these infrared markers, mm-hmm. for gloves and shoes all have markers on them. So you're in the suit. It yeah. takes a couple of hours to get into the suit every day. Um, and, you know, you really form a very intimate relationship. Right with the suit. I mean, at least it helps you get in character as a cyborg. 100%. You must a yeah. bit- <laughs> it felt like a walking contraption. And not only that, what it does is, you know, hair and makeup is great because it transforms you, the person. But for this, we're creating an entirely new person. Mm. So uh, what the suit did was it neutralized me, Rosa, in order for me to become Alita. Mm. So that was that was key. Yeah, that's helpful, I guess. What about um, Alita herself? And, and, you know, she's got the the big sort of almost manga eyes and everything. Does that give you a strange distance from your character? Is that that more distancing than it would normally be? Do you know what I mean? Because I'm guessing it's a little bit, I mean, it must look, it looks like you. She does look like you, but at the same time, not quite. Here's the thing. um, Those eyes suck me in, man. Mm. I saw, again, visionaries. Before I even had the role, they mocked up some um, concept art of how Alita might look. And Robert, on a on a just a lunch where we're getting to know each other, because uh, that's how he casts. He wants to get to know yeah, you. Yeah. Um, he goes, "Hey, I probably shouldn't show you this, but," um, <laughs> and he like opens a folder, and there is the concept art for Alita with my face. And I said, Robert, if I don't get this part, this is super fucked up. Like, you can't use my face, man. Sorry, bro. Um, and he laughed and he's like, well, this is kind of what we're going for. We we, we want her to have the manga style eyes. We mm-hmm. want to pay homage to her character in the book. Also, she's otherworldly. She's supposed to be different. Um, she's from Mars, for mm-hmm. Christ's sake. Um, she isn't like anyone else in Iron City. Um, so there's always a reason behind that but for me they suck me in and um just anecdotally I, I i called my mom i said hey did you see the trailer for alita she said yeah and i said notice anything because this was when the first trailer everyone was like the eyes the eyes the eyes I said notice anything and she goes it was great i said the eyes you know they're bigger she goes they look the same to me and i was like okay all right. Well, all right. Mom. Cool, mom. Well, mom's on board. Um, but uh, but yeah, you know it. I like the eyes stylistically. I love the eyes. Uh, it's like we pulled her right out of the manga, mm. and um, you know the eyes are the windows to the soul. True. Yeah. And those are big windows. Those are big windows, <laughs> and we need that when she is experiencing things and being affected by things. We want to see that emotion because that's what this movie is all about. Mm. It's all about her journey and the emotions that yeah. she's feeling. I mean, in terms of the emotion, it, it must help as well that you've got like an, a cast of Oscar winners around you because no, they no, actually hurt the pretty film. awful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tough, tough to work with. I was the only one that was good. 
<laughs> no, yeah, no, yeah. It does help. It does help uh, because they do. They they convey so much, doing so little. Mm-hmm. This is the goal for any uh, actor, yeah. I think, um, to to push less and less and less. It's sort of acting is sort of like a Chinese finger trap. You know, uh, in the beginning, you're really struggling to get that out there. You know, you're really trying to 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 get it all out. Um, but over time, you learn how to um, be more calm, mm-hmm. be more steadied, um, be more uh, uh, selective with what you are conveying. Uh, you get really good at tapping into the subtext uh, that you're transmuting to your partner, being present. All of these things help you sort of gradually get out what you are trying to convey and that's sort of um, it's like a ballet it's Mm. very graceful in that way so uh, just working with Christoph it was like almost by osmosis I was picking up um, his his talents Uh, so I just wanted to be around him all the time Jennifer Connelly uh, she's so poised this is something that um, you know I'm a street rat from DC which was also very good for the character of Alita but I I, you know um, I'm pretty ghetto you know this is how I actually talk in real life so like you know what I'm saying I'm a runaway girl so for me it's a real uphill climb to become that um, gentile uh, uh, poised uh, introspective subtle um, performer that I always craved to be so it was uh, it was a master class in acting Mahershala Ali is the same way Uh, he's conveying so much with doing so what seemingly what seemingly is so little Mm. so that's the trick yeah it it must be pretty fascinating just to kind of watch great people work like oh my that. god and then get to to play so, with yeah. them because um, that's what it is we're just playing and you realize that uh, the greats don't consider it this oh this is an undertaking and you must go work on your technique every night um which is kind of how you would expect Christoph to be you I know it, yeah. you know but uh no he, he reminded me that it's playing um, speaking of playing, this might be more at the work end of the spectrum, but tell yeah. me about the sort of training and the, oh, the physical yeah. side of this, because, yeah. you know, you had to do a lot, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah. It was um, <laughs> five months of backbreaking labor. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm small, I'm fit, I'm active. It was really difficult for me. Uh, it, it was, you know... F- physically, it was challenging. You know, I was... we were learning all sorts of different martial arts and and I I love being active like I love martial arts uh, I love the art form um but there what was more difficult for me uh, than toning my body was toning my mind uh, some days I would go in and I'd be like man I'm making so much progress it was very easy to be positive on those days. I'm like, hey, man, I'm not reaching like my full, you know, my, my full, like the full height range of my kick today. But it's all good. Like, I'm going to come in and I'm just going to keep doing it. And like, it's all righteous, brother. And then the next day I would come in and I would be absolute shit, I'd be absolute garbage. And I would end up sobbing. Mm. I would end up, uh, you know literally uh beating myself up because i just wanted so badly um to be perfect i'm I'm such a perfectionist i I criticize myself uh way too much hypercritical um so the, the the point of it was to be great 
I didn't want to be one of these actors that looked good on screen. I wanted to be good on screen. I wanted to be great on screen. So um, I really threw myself into it. Like I said, it was five months, two and a half, three hours, almost every day, um, batting away other projects that were coming my way, staying laser focused, staying Alita, treating it more uh, as a religion. And my sensei, Keith Hirabayashi, told me, he said, when you're sore, those are going to be your best days. Those are the days you need to come in because I would call and, you know, you know, make up all kinds of excuses. And, you know, my body really was in pain Um, when you're working out that much. Sometimes you wake up and you feel like a pile of bricks. But he said, no, 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 this is the day you need to come in. This is the day you're going to crave coming in down the line. I said, you're insane. Yeah, that sounds like a crazy person. But but he was right. And now I treat it more like a religion than a workout regime. Yeah. So you've kept it up since? Absolutely. You don't want to, I don't want to start back from the beginning. It was such, uh, it was such an uphill climb. (laughs) Now I'm at a place where I'm, I can maintain this level of of endurance and, and I love it. It's taught me so much about who I am. It, it taught me, um, you know, a certain level of determination um, that I needed in my own life. And also a beautiful byproduct was that I needed this to fully create the character of yeah, Alita. Absolutely. So what's next for you? I know you've like directed yeah. a short film. Are you planning more directing, more acting? What's, what's Absolutely. That? Well, definitely more acting. That's that's what I hang my hat on. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wrapped production on a show for Amazon called Undone, which is done in rotoscope. I, I Obviously, I, it turns me on to do my craft, but also have this other medium on top of my craft, sort of uh, awakening new parts of, of, of uh, myself and viewers, you know, just they can see things from another perspective. So that's all animated, but it's live action. So cool. similar to Alita. Mm-hmm. Um, I optioned a book. It's called uh, The Best Bad Things uh, by Katrina Carrasco, a very brilliant um, Latina writer. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful crime drama, mm-hmm. um, very sexy, very violent, um, very smart. So uh, we're going to start putting that together. I'm very excited about that. So taking on a more of a producer role, learning from the best, obviously, John Landau. Yeah. Got a master class in pr- producing from him. <laughs> um, and of course, more acting, you know, um, I want to pivot in, into doing more comedy, mm. pivot into doing more, um, you know, uh, independent cinema, back into independent cinema. I always want to keep a wide array uh, of projects. I want to choose projects not based on uh, whether they're film or television, um, but whether the story and the script are intact. So Be a visionary yourself. That's right. All right. Awesome. Well, best of luck. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. This was fun. All right, that was Rosa Salazar. Now it's time to get into the movie news section of the podcast. How exciting. And it is exciting because there is a ton of stuff to get into this week. First of all, Helen's looking at me with, with an expression going, is there? We've already discussed Supernatural Season 15, so... <laughs> okay, time now for a second guest. No, there's a ton of stuff. Yeah, and there is, I know there's a ton of stuff because um, I do these Alexa updates every morning, so I'm pretty much up to date on my movie news now. I know... Everything there is. Ask me anything about anything that happened this week. I will tell you. Uh, who's playing Batman? Don't know. <laughs> right. Cool. 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 Uh, that's what we should leave with, actually, because on, Ben Affleck, Batfleck, he has hung up his cowl. He is out, 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 as widely predicted, rumored, yep. expected, of Matt Reeves' The Batman, 
which has now got a release date. It's coming out in mm, of 2021. It's coming out in 2021, basically. I can't remember the month. What do you mm-hmm. want from me? News. Even though Affleck at one point was scheduled to write, direct, star in, write the theme tune, sing the theme tune of that film... He is now out, out, out. And I think at some point in the creative process of that movie, they decided they realised it was going to be focusing on a much younger Batman. Yeah, it's basically so Teen gone. Titans, isn't it? Oh, well, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Mm. Wait, it's not year one again, is it? It's not year one. They have okay. explicitly said that it's not going to be year one. It is going to be noir-tinged, and it's going to focus more on Bruce Wayne slash Batman as a detective. Oh, well, that's a, okay. Okay, good. Which that's... is something that we, we keep, yeah. they keep saying we will see in the movies. I remember interviewing Chris Nolan for... Batman Begins years ago before it came out and he was saying oh yeah it's certainly going to accentuate more of the detective side of Batman Duh, bollocks but you know this, this, <laughs> might, this might it's Yay. an mm, odd thing to dwell on isn't it because ultimately when you are dwelling on the detective part of it you've essentially just got a man pouring over spreadsheets in a costume no he, he's the world's greatest detective admittedly is, so you know. presumably he's going over the spreadsheets quite quickly but nevertheless that's you know <laughs> Detective work doesn't involve a great deal of punching bad guys or swinging from rooftops. You understand that detectives are not accountants, right? I don't understand. They're, okay. money, they're money detectives. Yeah, that's forensic. Very, very different. I mean, forensic accountancy, worthwhile profession. Ba- Batman, That would be amazing. Ben Batman, Affleck's done that, though. The world's greatest forensic accountant. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think the kind of detecting that Batman does... Metal detecting. I mean, also would be hilarious if they just got him dressed in the cowl and just sent him out to the banks of the Thames. Mudlarking. Oh my God, that would, I would so watch that. I would, oh, I can't imagine that, how good that would be. But no, look, we've seen him actually do a little bit of detecting. Do you remember in um, the first Tim Burton, Mm -hmm. where he sort of figures out, he actually figures out what the ingredients are that are making Mm -hmm. people go Joker. Yes. So, you know, he can do. Clever P- basic computer work, together. yes. Yeah, p- clever putting together things. That was chemistry. <laughs> it was chemistry, James, not spreadsheets. Jeez. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, his form of detecting is going to be more, you know, beating up people until they tell him what he needs to know, presumably. I don't know. I mean, that's one of the things I loved about I'm not a big gamer, but it's one of the things I loved about the Arkham games because there was a, a fair amount of detecting going on in that we had to analyse things oh. and figure out clues and who's doing what and follow this trail. I'd like to see that incorporated into one of the films. Just sitting really tediously up in the rafters while looking at things in X-ray and waiting for goons to walk out of the way. Yeah, I didn't like that. I like that stuff. I like it was good fun. I'm not a, I'm not a big gamer, so it worked for me. Obviously, you probably thought it was tedious, like a Monty Python sketch, but you are a, a <laughs> car crash of a human being, so not much I can do about that. Fair. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, look, I'm you know I'm on record as thinking like we're kind of okay for Batman but I mean if you're going to do Batman let's do something we haven't seen a million times that's 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 yeah that's fair I think it's, they should just call this another Batman shouldn't they <laughs> really and just go out of the way Batman. I'm still waiting for the Alfred movie you know the Bat Belt movie oh, I mean all those ones that Teen Titans go to the movies promised me I want to see those um, but what do we think about the fact that Affleck is now hanging up the cape you know he was only Batman in two uh, two full films and Suicide Squad for like a brief bit. Yeah. Mm. So are we really, you know, are we sad about this? What do we think this means? You have to say with Cavill leaving Superman as well, yeah. it does seem like Warner Brothers are, are going, yeah, we're no longer going down that route of Justice League 2 and bringing all these guys together. We're just going to 
do solo movies and then see what happens yes. down the line. But that yeah. seems like a sensible strategy, doesn't it? Like, re- refreshing, even if it is a soft reset, seems to me like a decent plan. Like, Batman's an excellent character. Nolan has proved, and Burton has proved, you can have truly phenomenal Batman films. There have been great Superman films as well. These are not bad characters. They've just, unfortunately, had a bit of a rough patch. So let's see, you know, what they can do. Yeah, I, th- I think a soft reboot is probably the way to go with, with all of this. Um, I didn't think... Uh, Affleck was a bad Batman, no, actually, or a bad Bruce just, Wayne. Just a sad Batman. He was a bit sad, but I, I, it just—I don't think he had the film around him to support anything. Really, yeah. I didn't—I didn't rate either of those films. I may have mentioned it once or twice, <laughs> probably not. Um, but I think it, we do risk a little bit of confusion with what's happening now because uh, the—I think the, the current state of play with the DC films is very much we're just going to do whatever works for this one film, which is probably better for the films individually because it was not working what they were trying to do but at the same time they do risk slightly confusing audiences that are now used to the Marvel model and I wonder if that's going to become a little bit of a problem down the line there's already there were some sort of hints of that already so I I don't know if that's going to be an issue or not maybe not maybe I think I think you know their attempts to tie things together were working so badly yeah. that mm. I think this is probably a better option but they may be creating a little bit of trouble down the line Standalone works like Aquaman mm. made a lot of fish so it did. you know mm. presumably that was the currency I'm just assuming but, you know and that was fun and I liked it in and of itself and I don't think you need to have that relate to other nonsense and nobody needs a cyborg movie so <laughs> I think let's just you know get back to basics people get back to basics uh, who, do we, who do we think will be the new Batman Timothy uh, Chalamet Timothy Chalamet that seems... I mean, he's actually quite tall. He just looks short because he's always yeah. standing next to Army Hammer. Um, <laughs> but no, I don't, I don't think it'll be Timothy Chalamet. No. no. More's the pity. I don't. I don't. I, I can't see that happening. Army Hammer has been seriously suggested. Obviously, he was in the mix once before for well, he the was DC. Batman. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, for the he, briefest of moments. For the briefest of moments. But I yeah. think he, he still wouldn't be a bad call. I think it'd be a great call. Um, if you don't know, by the way, Army Hammer was cast as Bruce Wayne and Batman in George Miller's Justice League way back in 2007 mm. along with Common who's Green Lantern uh, uh, Megan Gale was Wonder Woman they had the cast all ready to go they had built sets in about two months from production mm. I think the writer's strike was a part of it as well yeah, but it was some, there was something to do with funding uh, and it fell through at the last minute and the sets were and it just never happened but he was about 19 slash 20 when he was cast mm. as Batman back then it was clearly a, an attempt to do a younger Bruce Wayne I still think I was kind of young, but he's pretty much perfect casting, yeah. really. And now he's, what, 32, 33? That's still much younger than the Affleck Batman, who was clearly meant to be in his late 40s and kind of a Batman who'd been through it all and was a bit weary. Uh, so this this works for me. Uh, I'm excited about this. And by the time the movie comes out, it will be four years since we saw Justice League. So I think that's kind of, <laughs> I think that's kind of all right for a, for a reboot yeah, you know, yeah. in, in Hollywood years. And look, if they do well in the meantime with, with Shazam, with The Flash, with Wonder Woman 1984, you know, it may be that we'll completely turn around and be like, DC movies are awesome! Yeah. Yay for DC! Yeah, absolutely. Aquaman was, was fine. I liked Aquaman a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good stuff. All right. So there was more DC news mm-hmm. as well in the week. It's been confirmed that uh, James Gunn is indeed in talks to direct Suicide Squad 2, which is now known as Lee Suicide Squad. So this is clearly <laughs> DC <laughs> Warner's new model. We can expect Lil Wonder Woman at some point in 2023 after Wonder Woman 1984. Still a great title. What do we think of that? We know, I know we talked about it when he was mooted, when he was brought on board mm-hmm. to write the script. 
I still think he should be directing a film about a gang of immoral thieves and killers. It just shouldn't be The Suicide Squad. I, I find it hard to get really excited about Suicide Squad 2 or The Suicide Squad. Um, but I'll try before it comes out. Yeah. 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 If this is a game of brinkmanship with, uh, with Disney. He's like, look how close I am, guys, directing Suicide Squad 2. I'm getting real close, guys. Guys, I'm on the set. I'm, this is not a joke. They're making me direct this. Oh, God, I'm actually directing Suicide Squad 2. What's happening? Do you think he's been abducted? Is that what it is? No, yeah, that's it. That's what's happened. That's what's happened. They've they've abducted him. Um, this gives me hope for the Suicide Squad. He's proved that he can handle ensembles before, and uh, I expect this to be basically Guardians of the Galaxy three, but on Earth. I mean, okay. I mean, look, you know, there are some elements in Suicide Squad that could work really, really well in a James Gunn film. Mm-hmm. So let's hope that they make that because <laughs> the last one was rubbish. Yes, I watched it again recently, or I tried to. Got halfway through, it was like. <sighs> Yeah, it's not a good film. It's not a good film. So that's coming out also in 2021, before both the Suicide Squad and the Batman is coming DC Super Pets. So it's an animated movie about the super-powered pets in the DC universe. But like crypto. Yes. The secret life of super pets. Pretty pretty much. I'm hoping that this is along the same lines as Teen Titans go to the movies, because if it is, then we're in for a treat. Okay, if it is, I will allow it. If it's not, I am horrified. But I think if Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse has taught us anything, it's that we do not write off yeah. animated superhero films. Fair. I fair. agree. Even if they sound demented. <laughs> Especially if they sound demented. Yeah. Precisely. Uh, okay, James, you said earlier on, the bit I've now cut out, that you were going to be tedious. Yes. There's more Dune casting news. Oh, oh no. no! And I'm very excited about it. Uh, so, first of all, we heard that Oscar Isaac is joining as Duke Leto Atreides, mm. uh, Paul Atreides' father. And then we heard that Zendaya has joined the cast as Chani, who is the uh, the Fremen love interest. This is very, very exciting. This film is going to be the best film ever made, and um, I am absolutely on board with it. In, Sandworms ahoy. In, in James's defence, he's not wrong that it's very exciting. <laughs> he might be wrong about it being the greatest film Helen, ever made. the greatest film ever made. Okay, but, like, Oscar Isaac is very good casting because the idea is that this is a man who is, like, so hot that his wife decides to ignore a lifetime of training and give him a son instead of a daughter, which she's been told to do. That's right. Because she has the power to decide that. So that is why we have Paul Atreides and that is why everything in the film happens. So you need someone as searingly hot as Oscar Isaac to make that work. (laughs) Plus, I think he's good casting generally for the role. Okay. Who's his wife? Jessica Chastain, isn't it? Uh, his wife in this is Rebecca Ferguson. Sorry, Rebecca Ferguson. Rebecca Ferguson My as uh, the Lady Jessica of the Benet Gesserit Order. That's why I was thinking Jessica. I'm an idiot. Okay. Rebecca oh, Ferguson. That would be good. That would be Benet Jessica, Benet Gesserit Chastain. Yeah. Hang on yeah. a second. Is this movie trying to make us believe that Oscar Isaac with his face like a dump truck and <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson, ugh, uh, they would produce a son who looks like Timothy Chalamet? Yeah. I mean, what? Oh, yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, that's, that's 100%. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that, that yeah absolutely, absolutely true. sensible. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Also, uh, Wheel of Time went in, uh, is it apparently going into production? Oh, is it? Yeah. That's exciting. Yeah, it'll it's, never happen. I can hear but... Nynaeve tugging on her braid as we speak. Look, I, I, look, Elaine's just smoothing her skirts, okay? That's what you're hearing. This, this uh, series, if you don't know it, and you probably don't, it's about 14 books, um, all of them at least as long as any of the Game of Thrones books. Um, they were actually written by like George R. R. Martin's like, BFF yeah. until he died and uh, left the series unfinished. But someone else took over from his 1,200 pages of notes and Brandon Sanderson, for it was he, was able to finish um, the story. And uh, thank God we have the whole lot now. It's a little bit like Game of Thrones in that it's... You know, 
somebody's like trying to save the world, but it's quite complicated. Yeah. But with slightly more heroic characters and probably a little bit less beheading. It's also quite old school, and it's very sort of uh, sort of binary in its light and dark. It's dualism is a large it's, part. It's of It's more Time. binary for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Game of Thrones is a lot more, you know, shades of grey because everyone's a twat in that. But yeah, no, I enjoyed this. I, re- I read all of these at your behest, and in fact, someone tweeted me. I think it was yesterday or the day before, asking what this was mm. because they'd forgotten. Oh, there you go. And I reminded them, and now so have you. Hurrah! Fantastic. I was f- listening to that, and I was fully engaged. <laughs> Very exciting. Uh, should we talk zombies? Always. There was quite a lot of zombie news this week. Ooh, so yeah, there was. Zombieland 2 has started yeah. filming. So it's, excited. It is now called Zombieland Double Tap. And the original cast is back. And in fact, they released, uh, Sony released uh, the poster for this movie. Uh, basically, it's the poster for the original movie, yeah. but with the cast as they are now. Tenure Woody Harrelson looks exactly the same. It's <laughs> yeah. kind of really he weird. He does a lot of yoga. He really does, doesn't mm-hmm. he? And a lot of other things, uh, from my understanding as well. Uh, legal things, though. Yes. Yeah. Uh, his favourite magazine is Empire. Yes. He's a very relaxed, calm, yoga-doing guy. So he's a he's, cool cat. Yeah, he's ageing extremely well. In fact, um, someone suggested that they had all glowed up, and I think that's fair. Yes. And they're all looking extremely well. So it's yeah. Abigail Breslin, Emma Stone, and uh, Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, they're back uh, for Zombieland. The original director, Ruben Fleischer, is back, as indeed are the writing team, Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick. I'm excited about this one. Rosario Dawson joined the cast yes. this week as well. Uh, be fascinated to see how this one picks up because the first movie is a lot of fun. But the, the zombie movie news that really got me excited this week is the news that Zack Snyder is going to return to directing. Yeah. And he's going to return to directing with a reported $90 million budgeted Netflix movie. And Netflix have snapped up the rights to a movie that's been in development, been knocking around for a long, long time with Snyder attached as producer, but now director, Army of the Dead. Now, this is not a sequel per se to his Dawn of the Dead remake, which is excellent. I love the George A. Romero one. That will always be sacred to me, but the Snyder one is really, really good. Mm. This is not a sequel to that, but it is a zombie movie, apparently with fast-moving zombies, and it is a pretty cool premise. It's basically Escape from New York meets Ocean's Eleven meets lots and lots of zombies. <laughs> so the premise, as far as I understand it, is that in a world where a zombie outbreak has happened, Las Vegas has been quarantined with a massive wall, topical, to mm. keep the zombies in and the people out, and a group of mercenaries, hard-bitten mercenaries, decide to break into Las Vegas in order to mount the heist to end all heists. And never mind the fact that there are thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of zombies running around. So this sounds cool because it makes sense, doesn't it? If you're suddenly Las Vegas is quarantined, there would be millions upon millions of of dollars just sitting there in faults, Mm. just waiting to be to be nabbed if you are properly equipped. Um, Snyder has said this already that he's excited to return to directing. Obviously, he stepped away from Justice League after a a family tragedy, and now he's ready to get back into the uh, into the um, the director's chair. And this is going to be him with the handcuffs taken off and it is going to be balls to the wall zombie action and I am here for that. I am, yeah, I'm very mm. up for that actually because, um, you know, people think, again, people think I don't like Zack Snyder because I have mm. some reservations yep. about some DC films. Yep. That is not the case. I, I was a very big fan of his back in the day. and yep. I, You championed I'm, 300, as I recall. I did, I not went on Not just set. because it was nips out a go-go. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a supernatural box set, that movie. <laughs> Um, honestly, this I, is nipples. Honestly, I went on set and I did not know where to look. Um, I mean, I figured it out. It was all right, but um, where did you look? <laughs> oh, just in the eyes, straight in the eyes. Cod pieces. Never, never looked away from the eyes. That was really important. Okay, mm-hmm. my eyes are up here, Helen. <laughs> 
So uh, my point being, I am excited for this. I think he he has a really good eye for visuals, and I think he could make something really really cool looking yeah. for this. Mm. I'm mega mega excited for this. It sounds super awesome, as he might say. But no, I'm I'm really into this. I think what he did incredibly well with uh, the Dawn of the Dead remake was essentially blend the original Dawn of the Dead with Aliens, <laughs> and uh, in, yeah. even to the point where you some of the score, and it's it's incredibly effective and these are a um, few of your favorite things and these are a few of my favorite things <laughs> and i think this sounds absolutely batshit mental in the best possible way mm. uh, and i cannot wait to see it speaking of like loads of people dying or undying um the stand yes is coming yes to TV. that's m-o-o-n that spells the stand coming to tv <laughs> <laughs> thanks tom um <laughs> Yeah, no, it is uh, Stephen King's thousand-page-plus novel about a, a global pandemic that wipes out most of the population. Yep. And then, and then, to make matters worse, it turns out that essentially the devil is <laughs> trying to gather the survivors to him and take over the world, and there's only a 108-year-old farming woman um, out to stop him. So it's... Uh, it's pretty epic. It's pretty cool. It's never been done well on screen, let's no, be honest. See, that's harsh. Do you it's not like not the miniseries? I've seen it. Oh. I enjoy it for the bits where it's like The Stand, but it's mm. not, like, good in itself. I really it? like it's... it, and I've not read the book, so that's what? my only experience of The, the Stand. The book is, and I don't say it less lightly, the greatest book of all time, <laughs> and I include Helen O'Hara's great 80s movies <laughs> available now in all good and evil bookstores. Uh, it is extraordinary. It's 1,400 pages in its unexpurgated version, and I highly recommend you take a month off mm. and go and read it. It's it's absolutely incredible. Can, but can, the, can yes. I just say one thing, though? Yeah. Um, I read it on the plane back from uh, Comic-Con one year, and I'd never read it on a plane, because people cough on a plane, and if <laughs> you're reading the plague bit, when that happens, it's not Hang good. on, could I, could I just... Could, I read it, the longest book ever written, on a plane, I mean, says I Helen. I didn't entirely finish it on the plane. It probably took me another day or two. Oh, my God, you're a <laughs> you monster. Got, you got to the airport went, can you just go around a little bit? I'm nearly done. Just circle, it's fine. Take this plane to Cuba. The, the miniseries directed by Mick Garris... Let's just say I don't rate Mick Garris very highly as a as a filmmaker. <laughs> I don't particularly like the the miniseries that much. It's uh, not like the beginning, you know that that with the, yeah. the Don't Fear the Reaper where it pans mm-hmm. through the facility playing the mm-hmm. Blue Oyster Cult. I really really like that. I'm, I, I mean I like the whole series. I'm, but. I'm very glad for you. Okay. Uh, I'm on my own. Decent casting, no? I think Gary Sinise is yeah. stupid. It's got Miguel Ferrer. Yeah, this is that's good, but uh, this is exciting. This is going to be a ten-part series now on CBS All Access. So I'm not entirely sure how we're going to see it. It'll probably end up on Netflix or Netflix, Amazon Prime, some, I mean, something the, like that. Yeah, CBS All Access is, mm. does Discovery, which does. is on Netflix. So we have to hope for that and kind of deal. You can hear all about this on the Pilot TV podcast on Monday. Cutting that bit out. Uh, so this is directed by, written and directed by Josh Boone, who of course is the director of The Fault in Our Stars. In his statement about this, he said that when he was about 12, his parents, who were very devout Baptists, found his copy of The Stand and burned it. And then he wrote to Stephen King and explained this to them. And then Stephen King himself sent a copy of signed, uh, a box of signed books. And his parents, Josh Boone's parents, were so moved by this gesture that they allowed him to read the books. Oh, that's good. And so now he is returning the favour and adapting The Stand. But he's also the writer and director of the heavily delayed The New Mutants. Which part of me is actually wondering if we're ever going to get to see. No. And that does give me pause for this. Hey, do you remember there's an X-Men film coming this year? There is two, apparently. (laughs) Amazing. I will say, I think it's a good choice. If only because they can call this film The Fault in Our Sars. (laughs) Oh, boy. That's solid. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about really, really quickly as well. Uh, There is finally a new Invisible Man coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah, a new Invisible Man. And is it John Cena? Because you can't see him. Is it Dave Bautista? 
be careful what you say here because the Invisible Man <laughs> is actually here. Welcome <laughs> on the podcast. Hello, everybody. Oh, no, it's Randy Newman who made him invisible. I'm the Invisible Randy Newman. Oh, God. No, I please. see him, I stand, but you can't see me. Stop it, Randy. Anyway, Lee Winnell, director of Upgrade, uh, is going to write and direct this for Blumhouse, but it's apparently not going to be the usual $5 million, $10 million Blumhouse thing. It'll be a little bit higher than that. Uh, this is not going to be a resuscitation of Universal's Dark Universe. They had that that ill-fated foray into MCU shared universe <laughs> type stuff where they actually had that really hubristic picture of Tom Cruise and Sofia Batella and Russell Crowe along with Javier Bardem, who was going to play Frankenstein's monster, and Johnny Depp, who was going to play the Invisible Man. And that is no longer going to come to pass, but Lee Winnell will write and direct The Invisible Man. No idea who's starring yet or anything, but Winnell knows his horror mm. onions, and I'm excited. Yeah, I think this is, uh, this is a good call. It makes more sense than making it a sort of blockbuster in the Dark Universe style that they were trying to go for. Um, I think this could work. Helen, you'd be delighted to know that Chris Nolan's got a new film it's coming I'm out. I'm delighted. What, what's 2020? Okay. No one knows. Oh, of course they don't. No, it's set in the architecture of the whatever. Yep. Mm. Yep. Two last things we should talk about is this Muda David Bowie biopic with Johnny Flynn, star of Beast. Mm. I feel like I feel like it's a shame that Terry isn't here to talk about this. Presumably she swooned on hearing the news and has not yet recovered. Because she likes Beast a lot. Oh, yeah. okay. I imagine she's positive on this. Okay. Johnny Flynn is an extremely talented young actor. Yep. So I, I don't know that he looks massively like Bowie to me, but then, you know, hair and makeup can do a lot. Also, this is uh, quite a bone of contention, isn't it, at the moment? Because it's going to take place around the time that, that Bowie decided to come up with Siggy Stardust, which was a, a transformational thing for him, uh, literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. But Duncan Jones, who of course is David Bowie's son, mm-hmm. took to... I'm saying Bowie and Bowie, by the way. I, it's so, I, which is right? Uh, I believe it's Bowie because Duncan Jones' birth name was Zoe Bowie. I thought it was Zowie Bowie. That's what I thought. It's Zowie Bowie, but I mean, yeah. I could be wrong. Bowie Bowie. Perhaps who knows? we should ask someone who knows. Can someone DM Duncan Jones, please, and find out? Yes, but he took to Twitter. Duncan Jones took to Twitter and said that, as far as he knows, no one has granted anyone the rights to use David Bowie's music for a biopic, and he should know. So. Watch this space, see what mm, happens. Interesting. And the last thing I want to talk about is uh, some sad news that the legendary character actor Dick Miller yeah. passed away this this week at the age of 90. You know Dick Miller, you'll have seen him in tons of stuff. If you've watched a Joe Dante movie, you will have seen Dick Miller. He did memorable turns in the likes of The Howling, both Gremlins movies as Murray Futterman, Piranha, The Burbs, where he was taking out Tom Hanks' trash along with Robert Picardo, but he also worked with the likes of Martin Scorsese, Roger Corman for A Bucket of Blood, and of course The Terminator, where he was the pawn shop clerk who was memorably blown away by Arnold Schwarzenegger in that scene with the uh, the phased plasma rifle in the 41 range. That's right. And he was one of those actors who was just, he just improved everything he was in just by being in it. He was great. Uh, Amen to that. He was wonderful. I love him in Gremlins. He's just one of my favourite characters in it. Oh, Mr. Fodderman, so good. So good. Dick Miller, who died this week, age 90. We're very excited this week to be sponsored on the Emperor Podcast for the second week in a row by The Economist. Here's a bit that I didn't record earlier on, Honest. Now, for the second week in a row, we are delighted to be sponsored by the legendary magazine, The Economist. Now, sometimes the word legendary is a tad overused. Contrary to popular belief, for example, that cheeky chicken dinner you had for lunch. It wasn't legendary, guys. People will not be talking about it in hushed tones years from now. But with The Economist, that word definitely applies. It's been going for 170 years. To put that into context, Empire considers themselves to be an elder states magazine. And we've only just turned 30. 
And The Economist is absolutely the only choice if you want to read a magazine that is the smart guide to the forces changing your world. And as with last week, we have an incredible offer for all Empire Podcast listeners, a free print copy of The Economist. No catches, no hidden tricks, no sneaky sneaky. This is completely free and could be in your hands soon. All you have to do is text MOVIES, the word MOVIES, to the following number, 78070. MOVIES. Could be all caps, could be all lowercase, but it is the word MOVIES. And the following number, 78070. And pretty soon after that, you'll be reading incredible articles about economics, politics, entertainment, and much, much more. One such article in The Economist that caught my eye recently was about the dangers of autonomous weapons and how to tame them. For anyone who's grown up watching the Terminator movies and sundry other films where sophisticated defense networks suddenly decide that humans are a mere inconvenience, this one really hit home. And it's good that someone is actually doing something about it. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. So thanks once again to The Economist for sponsoring the show. And don't forget to pick up your free print copy. Now that is legendary. Okay, time now for our second guest this week. Dean Dubois is the director of the How to Train Your Dragon trilogy, which ends this week with How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. And he has shepherded this franchise from humble beginnings to, well, what we see this week. Uh, We sent Ben Travis, who knows his trained dragon onions, along to talk to Dean earlier on. Enjoy. Welcome to the Empire Podcast, the director of uh, How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World, and How to Train Your Dragon 2, and, and co-director of the first film, uh, Dean de Blois. Did I, did I nail that? You did, yes. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you. Thanks How for are you having doing? Me. Yeah, thanks for coming along. Was it an emotional experience for you bringing the, the How to Train Your Dragon saga to a close uh, to, to round out the trilogy uh, 10 years after the first film? Yes, it was uh, definitely emotional and bittersweet in some regards because the the team that made all three of these films has largely been the same mm-hmm. over the last decade and so we bid farewell to one another and we may not be reassembled uh, for a project in the future in the same way uh, just as you know we're bidding farewell to the characters of the story mm-hmm. and what was it about um, about that journey and those characters of, of especially Hiccup and Toothless who there's just a huge amount of emotional connection there what, what was it about them that made you want to devote an entire decade of your life to, to telling their story it, nothing in my career so far has um, ever panned out the way that I expected mm-hmm. so I think jumping into How to Train Your Dragon to help Chris Sanders when he was reassigned to it in 2008 was uh was in, in my mind kind of a short-term assignment. We were going to jump in and use the 15 months that remained before its release to uh, try to put together a story that worked mm-hmm. and worked very hard to get it all done in time. I didn't anticipate that I, w- I would be attached to it mm-hmm. um, in 2019. <laughs> <laughs> but it, following its success at the box office, uh, the studio had approached me to think up ideas for a sequel. Mm-hmm. Chris Sanders had gone back to work on The Croods. And so I said, I don't really like sequels in general if they lack purpose. And therefore, mm-hmm. how about a trilogy where we could use three installments to play as three acts of one larger coming of age? Mm-hmm. And we'd follow Hiccup from the Viking runt ne'er-do-well to the, the, the wise Viking chief that he mm-hmm. was destined to be. And in the process, explain what happened to dragons. Mm-hmm. and why they aren't here anymore. That felt like a, a compelling narrative to me. And it was only 
after beginning work on it that I that it started to occur to me that wow this this really feels in some ways like the the Star Wars trilogy did mm-hmm. to me when I was a kid mm-hmm. um, that it was an expansion on a world that I loved with characters that I was growing quite affectionate to that in a lot of ways reflected myself and those people I know Hiccup in particular just being an oddity in his world mm-hmm. and you know someone who would be more inclined to stay inside and read comic books than to be outside playing sports <laughs> that was <laughs> that was definitely my upbringing and I, I so I want to talk through various aspects of the whole trilogy um, and we'll we'll come back to that Star Wars note um but to go right back to the beginning then, so so when you were brought in and you thought it was a temporary thing, did, you, you didn't have this initial feeling like this is going to be a decade-spanning trilogy, this is what I'm going to be working on for, for the next 10 years? True. Uh, in fact, I had spent the time between Lilo and Stitch 2002 mm-hmm. and jumping on to How to Train Your Dragon in October of 2008. I was out um, setting up live-action films to write and direct uh, three, in fact, two at Disney and one at Universal Studios. And uh, all three had actually fallen victim to the same uh, the same situation, which was a change in presidency mm-hmm. um, often affects the outcome of films mm-hmm. that are in development. And so I was getting nowhere fast. Uh, but I thought jumping on to How to Train Your Dragon was going to be a, a quick assignment that would, you know, help pay some bills and while I waited for results on the live action side. And it ended up becoming, uh, you know... A, a huge chapter mark in my life. I mean, it was a 10, 10 year era in which I was able to work with some of my, my heroes in filmmaking that I had anticipated. I would mm-hmm. only be able to interact with in the live action world being people like Steven Spielberg and Roger Deakins, and, mm-hmm. uh, Kate Blanchett. And <laughs> yeah. And to, to touch on some of the kind of, um, the big standout moments from that first film. I, I love the first meeting between Hiccup and, and Toothless. Um, it's such a like lovely, tender sequence. Um, was that the first sign for you that um, that Toothless as a character was going to be perfect for for slapstick comedy? You have the the kind of the way that those characters move together and, and the comedy is there's is obviously not through through dialogue with with Toothless being unable to speak. Um, how did you kind of develop? the relationship of those characters and the comedy between those characters from that initial uh, sequence? Well, Toothless was designed to represent um, both sides of the spectrum. In in one way, he was the most feared dragon in the the Viking folklore. Mm -hmm. Um, No one had ever seen one up close. He was, you know, this sort of inky black that would disappear against the night sky, blotting out stars. Uh, you would feel his attack more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, fierce and mysterious, but when Hiccup finally comes upon him, not only does he live up to that reputation and, and completely terrify Hiccup, but he soon discovers that this is a, a vulnerable and wounded animal that needs his help. And in offering that help, we start to see another side of Toothless, which was by design meant to reflect dogs and cats. And, um, you know, uh, we, we wanted people to see their pets in Toothless. Mm-hmm. And so um, in, in channeling a black panther mixed with a salamander, we ended up with this character that was going to be very flight worthy, large enough for Hiccup to fly on the back of, um, but also when needed and called upon could be a, a large cuddly pet. Mm-hmm. And, that gave us great range. Uh, we, he could be, you know, instinctive and uh, uh, quick to react in a very fearsome and intimidating way, but also um, by giving him large ear plates that could signal 
changes of of mood, um, large eyes and and uh, a big trash can mouth similar to Stitch. Um, he had a uh, he had the ability to to sort of uh, emote in a in a soft and sympathetic way as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, one one of my favourite sequences in the uh, in the new film is um, the the sort of flirtation sequence between uh, Toothless and the the Light Fury, his sort of the yin to his yang, who he meets in in the Hidden World. That sequence feels like it sort of echoes and, and rhymes with that meeting between Hiccup and, and Toothless. Was, was that a sort of purposeful nod for you? Yes, it was. It was mm-hmm. very much intentional. Knowing that this was the third part of the trilogy, that sequence was designed to be. Uh, you know, a, a bookend to what we call Forbidden Friendship, the sequence that you're referring to in the mm-hmm. first film, in that we have two characters that are getting to know each other on an isolated beach. <laughs> um, and in this case, uh, with the additional third wheel element of hiccup in the in the bushes, like, you know, like it's Cyrano de, Cyrano de Bergerac, <laughs> we, we wanted uh, Toothless to be polluted by his time spent with humans. Not only is he the last night fury, so therefore he hasn't had siblings and parents to teach him the ways of furies, um, but he's been living in a domesticated way with Hiccup for for a while now. So when called upon, uh, he's a bumbling idiot in, in terms of courtship. And Light Fury, by contrast, is is pure. She comes from the hidden world. She's not the last of her kind. She's been surrounded by dragons and her only interactions with humans have been negative as mm-hmm. we see early on in the film. So uh, it, f- it felt like a nice setup to a comedic scene that would rely entirely on pantomime and John Powell's music. Mm-hmm. I, I remember uh, when I was watching the first film uh, for the first time, uh, being so, so struck by the, the flight sequences, the exhilaration, the, the sort of speed, the, the gravity of them, and, and the danger as well. You have that moment where um, where Hiccup, he becomes untethered from, from Toothless and he's, and he's falling and, and you don't know if they're going to get out in time. Um, what was it like developing those sequences? And you mentioned before Roger Deakins, the cinematographer who um, has kind of been partially involved, I believe, in all three films, yes. has he? Yep. And w- was he... Uh, did he help you out with those sequences? How did he contribute to to these films? Uh, well, first part of your question, it was just such a thrill for Chris Sanders and I on that first film to play in the world of CG animation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we come from a hand-drawn animation background where there were many limitations in terms of what we could do with the camera, how dynamic we could be. Uh, and suddenly we had this new tool in the box that we were just having a great and giddy time playing with. So designing um, action sequences and kind of visceral kinetic thrill rides on the backs of a dragon was just, it was, it not only was delivering on the premise of a movie with dragons, but it, it was a new tool in our hands and we were having a great time with it, trying to make it as, um, I guess, immersive mm-hmm. and uh, visceral as possible. And then, Roger Deakins, who we brought into the mix because we wanted we wanted more conversation between the team that was creating the camera moves and compositions with the team that was actually lighting those shots down the road. They were mm-hmm. separated by months in the pipeline, and we wanted a little more communication. So we brought in Roger Deakins to to help bridge that bond, but he actually ended up joining the production as a full-time consultant, which was great because he was influencing decisions right up at the front in terms of the palette and atmosphere and uh, kind of inspirational reference for the the sequences of the movie all the way through to the final lit shots. 
Um, and that, that meant that he weighed in on a lot of the camera decisions as well. And I think one of the, the, the biggest, uh, the most profound epiphanies for me was that Roger, despite the fact that we could put the camera anywhere and do anything we wanted with it, he was about restraint. He would, he would ask us why, you know, who's, Whose point of view is this serving? How is it helping the story along? Mm. Or are you just showing off? <laughs> Which, How know, often were you just showing off? <laughs> I mean, the, 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 certainly the temptation is there to show off because mm-hmm. you, can do, um, you can do just about anything in a virtual world with a virtual camera. Mm-hmm. And so it really was a discipline that he helped instill in all of us to uh, think of the storytelling first and think of the character's mm-hmm. point of view as driving that storytelling. So I, I read when um, when you signed on for the sequel, um, yeah, that, that it was it wasn't just to do a sequel. You said if I'm going to do it, it's, it's going to be a, a trilogy. Um, at that point, did you sort of map out the story beats for for the second and the third film, or did you just have a general sense of of where the third film was heading while concentrating mainly on the second? My approach was was yes to pitch a trilogy, but um, in order to to alleviate their nervousness about that concept, I pitched them the basic beats of what would be the second and third mm-hmm. installment and how they would all work together as one larger story, uh, just so that they knew what they were buying into. Mm-hmm. And the the condition that was thrown back at me by Jeffrey Katzenberg at the time was, I want each of these films to be standalone stories, uh, mm-hmm. not cliffhangers. This isn't Lord of the Rings. You're not going to leave the audience wondering, oh my God, what happens next? Um, it has to be they, they, they will be related. They will continue a larger story when seen together, but they don't rely upon the audience having seen the previous installment in order to appreciate and have a complete experience mm-hmm. watching two or three. Um, to go back to what you mentioned about Star Wars before as well, I um, uh, so I read as well that, that Empire Strikes Back was a was a big reference point for you for especially the second film, um, and I, I think there are various ways that you feel that it is a it's a bigger film, it's a darker film. I mean, Hiccup experiences real loss with with the death of Stoic, and uh, there are sort of familial revelations with the arrival of, of Valka. Can you tell me a bit about? how else the the Star Wars trilogy sort of permeated its way into into How to Train Your Dragon and um, about how it influenced that second film especially? I think uh, there are several ways. So my recollection of The Empire Strikes Back when I was was a kid was that it took everything I loved about A New Hope and it expanded upon it in every Mm -hmm. direction. So the world became bigger. The characters had cooler outfits. Uh, The 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 movie was funnier. It was more adventurous. It had greater peril. There's, there, there was nothing about the, the the second film in that trilogy that, for me, was um, a disappointment. And so, just as a benchmark, mm-hmm. we thought, how do we do that with our world? We have, uh, we ended this, the first film with Vikings now flying on the backs of dragons. That means the world can expand in every direction. They can be pushing the boundaries of their maps. Uh, in Hiccup's case, if he's an ace flyer and an intrepid explorer with Toothless, he may have evolved his his costume to be one that's a little more aerodynamic and purpose-built. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, uh, having gone to Comic-Cons and seeing people in cosplay outfits, I wanted to inspire people to to want to create these outfits. Like, let's give them something that they're going to want to build. And that's been a... That's been, a focus of mine for, for the, for all three films. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was part of it. And then, yes, I think 
having a character who's sort of trying to find himself against uh, the backdrop of, in this case, two very overbearing parents mm-hmm. was was something that I think I gleaned from, certainly from Empire Strikes Back. Um, and the, the original version of How to Train Your Dragon 2 uh, was focused on Valka being not only his mother and uh, a fellow dragon rider and somebody who had gleaned great knowledge from dragons, but a person who had been out there long enough to distrust humans entirely and to believe only in the segregation of dragons. And mm-hmm. therefore, she was actually positioned as the sympathetic antagonist of the movie. That Drago Bloodvist was a force that was coming, but we wouldn't meet him until the third movie. That was right. my original pitch. Mm-hmm. So the first, I mean, the second film was about him meeting her and and having a whole new revelation about his life, but then realizing that this person shares uh, or has a, a fundamental uh, f- philosophy that went against his own. Mm-hmm. And she believed that they, she not only had to get her dragons to safety, but all of the dragons on Burke. And it, it, it led, to, uh, led to a moment where, where Toothless and Hiccup were taking on Valka and her dragons right. to protect Burke. Right. And it's and and ultimately it end, it ended on a kind of a bittersweet note where he stops her from extracting the dragons of Burke. But he says, uh, but she says, you're going to have to pick a side. Mm-hmm. The war is coming. And she leaves having made her decision. And it breaks apart this this uh, burgeoning uh, rekindling of a relation between relationship between um, mother and son. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, it was interesting because it had kind of this this bigger sort of Shakespearean <laughs> mother and son quality to it. But at the end of the day, we, we rather quickly realized that if she was going to be Hiccup's mother, that um, there was something ultimately difficult about kids turning to their parents in the, in the cinemas saying, uh, why is Hiccup fighting his mom? And mm-hmm. why is his mom taking away the dragons? And, <laughs> and so I, th- I think it was that relationship of mother and son that ended up changing the dynamic and bringing Drago Bloodfist into the story earlier. I mean, you, you still feel um, uh, it, it, by the Hidden Worlds, a uh, big part of Hiccup's development. He's he's a, a leader now. He's been the leader for a, a year. And, and his choice is to try and find somewhere that, that yeah, humans and dragons can coexist peacefully and, and that that is a possibility and that that's what he's searching for. Um, how, how did you want to... Uh, you mentioned at the start Hiccup's story. It's, it's a coming-of-age story. And how did you want to tackle that transition into real adulthood here obviously he's a lot older in the second one but here he it's all on his shoulders i thought the biggest challenge was going to be how do we separate dragons and humans mm-hmm. in such a way that the audience wouldn't hate us because <laughs> we, we do have kind of a vocal uh, fan base out there We're quite fervent about the idea of of hiccup and toothless together and my answer was well we, we have to take them on the journey we have to have them be um, in step with hiccup along the way and realize that ultimately his goal of creating peace between dragons and humans comes at the expense of toothless's nature. Right. And in a way that, that makes for um, somewhat of a less naive and a little bit more of a hopefully sophisticated and mature look at this ideology. Mm-hmm. So yes, it's a wonderful goal uh, to keep in mind peace and coexistence and everything that hiccup represents but also at what expense uh for hiccup personally his love comes before his ideology mm-hmm. and though he doesn't abandon that idea that the dragons could come back that we if we just figure out our problems as humans mm-hmm. um he didn't want to do so at the expense of toothless 
finding happiness. Um, so that's, uh, I think the, the wisdom to let go is mm -hmm. the fundamental theme of the film. And that's what we, that's how we tried to embrace it was this idea of hiccup slowly realizing that, um, the, not only the, the friend he loves most, but also in a sense, uh, the character that defines him defines this version of him, mm -hmm. um, is going to go away and he's going to have to face the mirror and, and determine whether or not he has what it takes to be, uh, a successful, um, and capable leader without him. And, and part of that is, is obviously the discovery of the light fury. Do you think, does, does Hiccup see that coming at all? Do you think, um, in that moment, has he, do you feel like he was already preparing for that? Or do you think that's the moment when he sees the light fury that he thinks this is all going to change? Well, we've teased all the way back to the beginning of the second film that they've been looking for Night Furies with all of, in all of their explorations. Mm. I think they've come to suspect that he may be the last of a dying breed. Uh, and the upon, upon seeing the Light Fury in the woods, Hiccup's elated because he thinks, oh, great, you know, my best friend is going to have a mate and she's going to move in and we're all going to be happy. <laughs> and he's a bit naive in that respect because uh, very soon he realizes that she has no intention of becoming a domesticated dragon mm -hmm. and she comes from a world of her own and she wants to lure, lure toothless back to uh into the wild uh so that she's an engine of change ultimately as mm -hmm. innocently as she's presented and as charming as their courtship is on screen she's really there to sort of break up our star couple mm -hmm. but hopefully in a way that doesn't uh, compromise her charm and I mean, adding extra pressure there is um, is uh, Grimmel, uh, who for me is probably the most menacing villain in in the whole series. Um, oh, thank you. Did you want him? Was that an extra thing as well? That this is this is the toughest point that that um, Hiccup's going to have to face through this trilogy of of these external threats. Yes, I mean Gr Grimmel definitely um, represents an external pressure. The mm -hmm. internal one being Hiccup is afraid of actually becoming the kid that he was back in the, in the beginning of the first film, incapable and always in the way toothless made him something uh, to be reckoned with something to be respected. In comes Grimmel who not only eliminated all of the night furies and therefore is here to claim the last one. Uh, but he also very much despises hiccups attempt to bring peaceful coexistence to the world. Mm -hmm. He's a very intolerant character who uh, a bit of an elitist, uh, thinks that the human race should not be subjected to dragons who are nothing but thieves and murderers and um, they they should be eliminated as as vermin so uh fundamentally he's he's there to sort of crush everything that hiccup represents mm -hmm. applying real pressure to not only uh hiccup's security blanket as it were with toothless but to the overall ide ideology that he's been bringing into existence so just to, to wrap things up very quickly, um, have you let go of Hiccup and Toothless? Uh, is, is this definitely the end for you? Are you going to have that hankering in a few years? And, and what are you going on to next? <laughs> uh, it is the end for me uh, because I, I really wanted to see it through mm -hmm. to, the, to a finite end. And I'm proud of that. Um, it feels like a, a feather in the cap of everyone who worked on these movies, all, all 300 plus of us. Um, so I am, I'm really happy to be ending this decade uh, on a high note, and I'm very excited about whatever's next. Uh, I hope it's as engaging and exciting and uh, challenging as, as what we 
took on for the last 10 years. But but I'm happy to set it aside. I'm happy to say goodbye to it. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Dean de Blois. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks so much. Okay, so that was Dean de Blois, and we're going to start the review section with How to Train Your Dragon, The Hidden World. Uh, Helen, as a fan of this franchise, something I am not, I what? have to say. You I didn't like the first one, really? and if I'm completely honest, I didn't really pay much attention to the rest of it after that. <sighs> so, what did, what's your take on this? It, will there be a dry eye in the house? Or is this a hiccup in the franchise? <laughs> no. Um, uh, honestly, I am not the person to ask, because I'm so invested in the relationship between Hiccup, who's Jay Baruchel's sort of Viking boy, and uh, his dragon Toothless, uh, that I, I I am a sucker for them, basically. Um, so this film, uh, their island of Burke is now a dragon haven. There's dragons everywhere. Maybe too many dragons, to be honest. It's all a bit no, chaotic. Um, but the hunt, a hunter called Grimmel, who's voiced by F. Murray Abram, turns up and basically threatens to sort of disrupt the peace, to, to enslave the dragons for himself and destroy this kind of idyll that, um, that Hiccup has built. Uh, so then it becomes a question of how do we save our dragons uh, essentially right. uh, the problem for me with this film is uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot going on there's a lot of characters there's a lot of the sort of the comic relief characters getting their own little arcs um, and I don't care about any of them I just want to watch a film about Hiccup and Toothless. I am so unreasonably devoted to them and to uh, their relationship that that's all I want to do. And I honestly don't understand you that you didn't love the first film because that's basically what that's all about. Because that's just one of the most glorious pieces of animation and storytelling and character work I've seen in, in years. Um, so yeah, so for meh. me this film is... It's time for me to meh you. You, you, you are, are the, you the are arch mayor. But now I am the mayor of this podcast. Yeah. Meh. Meh to you too, sir. Mm. Meh, I say. Um, no, I, I. So for this one, I think all of the distraction kind of is fine. I mean, there's interesting stuff going on. The animation obviously remains beautiful and everything else. I mean, this is the franchise that has Roger Deakins on call as a consultant, so obviously it looks gorgeous. The Deeks. Uh, but at the same time, I just want to see Hiccup and Tithalus. And so the the end of the film where it kind of comes back just to them. Mm-hmm. I find enormously effective and, and basically bowled my eyes out, of course. But everything else, I was a bit like, I mean, come on. <laughs> I'm in complete agreement with Helen. I, yeah, I, I really like How to Train Your Dragon. I really like How to Train Your Dragon 2. I think the, the issue with this is exactly what Helen says. There's too much focus on people you just don't care about. I think the two twins, what are they? Rough Nut and Tough Nut? Yeah. Deeply aggravating. Don't need them to have more screen time, thanks very much. Uh, and there wasn't enough Toothless and there wasn't enough of them together. Particularly, I miss those kind of vertiginous flight scenes mm. that were so effective in the first two and, and are a little bit absent here. I think it's a little bit muddled. The story kind of meanders all over the place a touch and, and doesn't seem to go anywhere exciting. It lacks a really good finale as well. Uh, you know, I quite enjoyed Grimmel a bit. I was distracted slightly that it sounded like F. Murray Abraham, but looked alarmingly like Kieran Hines. Uh, it did, but didn't to, it? It, but yeah. to the point where I was like, it's Kieran Hines. It, it's just Kieran Hines, and I couldn't get away from yeah. that. Uh, but, you know, it's fun. You know, it's not a bad film by any stretch. It's, it's a good film. It's just not the film I think we wanted it to be, or it could have yeah. been. Yeah. But I think if you watch the first two, absolutely watch this one. There's lots of fun to be had. I do think this is, was, is, and is still. Universal's best uh, sort of animation property. I would so. agree with that. I would also say that there's a lovely thread of Hiccup trying to date another dragon. <laughs> yeah, say, trying she to doesn't have a name. She doesn't have a name, which no. is, the, I mean, just in terms the, of the Bechdel test, it's just like, oh my God, <laughs> the girl in this doesn't even get a name. Uh, yeah, she, so she, but, but she's a wild dragon, that's why she doesn't have a name. Yeah. So she, but, but his attempts yeah. at wooing her are actually very, very charming and um, 
just kind of ridiculous in, in a lovely way. So those okay. scenes are great, and those those scenes are the ones that get closest to what worked about the first. The one. most expressive, I think, uh, uh, Toothless has ever been as well when he's trying to flirt is just genius. Yeah, it's wonderful. All right. So uh, you're saying I should probably reconsider my attitude towards this franchise. Hundred percent. Okay. We shall see. Three stars in for How to Train Your Dragon: The Hidden World. Farewell, Toothless. Farewell, Hiccup. We hardly knew ye. Terrible when they die at the end, isn't it? Just when How they get dare you? crushed by that. Don't even. Giant anvil. <laughs> they lower Toothless into the steel. <laughs> Does he one upraised claw? <laughs> uh, next up, we have the multi Oscar nominated Green Book, uh, which sees Figo Mortensen. Hey, Figo Mortensen, he's playing Tony Lip. He's an Italian American bouncer from the Bronx. And he, uh, yeah. he gives a lift, shall we say? <laughs> he gives a lift. He doesn't give a lift. He, give a lift, he is no. a driver for Mahershala Ali's Dr. Don Shirley, a jazz pianist who is embarking on a tour of the Deep South in the 1960s. Yeah. This is a, in inverted commas, true story. Uh, and it, it's Based a, on a true friendship is what the... Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah the which means is. massive dramatic licence taken. Obviously, I didn't know a great deal about the real Don Shirley, uh, so I just took this film for what it was. Uh, and I know there's been a lot of controversy about it. I thought this film was fantastic. I really, really, really enjoyed it. I thought Mahershala Ali in particular was extraordinary uh, in his role in that. And I, I, I really enjoyed Viggo Monson as well, and they've both been, been lauded for it. Uh, but it... I think the issue that some people certainly take from it is it takes a light touch with a serious matter. But I'm not sure that in itself is reason to, you know, to sort of disavow the film. It's it's beautifully written. It's lovely. It's a, got a lovely structure. It's a real sort of tale of this sort of burgeoning friendship. And people talk about it being crossing racial boundaries. It felt to me it was more about class boundaries than racial boundaries. I really enjoyed the sort of meeting of two worlds, this really working class, rough around the edges sort of New York guy who kind of brushes shoulders with mobsters to this incredibly sort of refined sort of classical pianist uh, and you know the, the, their world sort of colliding Mahershala Ali's character being introduced to KFC for the first time you know and who doesn't f- remember their first time uh, being introduced to the colonel uh, no, no really really touching really lovely I came out of this film with a real kind of spring in my step just feeling quite you know just elated and happy more than I have in a film in a long time and we saw it in a packed house we saw it together uh, we saw it in a packed house and there was a lot of cheering there was a standing you know roar of approval when it finished so you know it went down very well and I know that there has been a lot of backlash to this partly around the director partly around its you know in inverted commas historical accuracy but taken as a film in its own right I think it's it's really lovely Helen yeah no I think uh, this is the thing it plays really really well and I did enjoy large sections of it Mm. Um, I think what worries me is that I have read a bit about the history Mm. and the the sort of the criticisms that have been made and the fact the way that it seems to have been fictionalised in certain ways to make it more of a kind of white saviour movie and, and actually to make it more of a story than it really is. Mm. I mean, the, the the story from Dr Don Shirley's family is really that this essentially is not what He gave happened. him a lift. And, th- and this is written by the son of Tony Lip's character, basically. So it's, it's, you know, it's part of his family history. It's obviously what he's been told that he's then sort of kind of passing on. But, I mean, I think nobody really went to the Shirleys and sort of talked to them, I think, is, is maybe the issue. Um, so that, that kind of makes it a little bit uncomfortable so at times. Are you saying that they really should have, the family should have gone to the filmmakers and just said, don't call me Shirley? Oh. But, but, they, but they didn't oh, know that. That's... <laughs> 
Oh, can we raise the film from the record now? Oh That's um, definitely, I've turned against it now. You've, you've managed to do it. Um, um, but I think, you know, I think both great mm, performances. Yeah. I thought Mahershal Ali in particular is just, he's such a dignified actor and the way that man wears a suit should, oh be, in, God. should be in a museum. Yeah. I mean, my God, it's incredible. Um, it belongs so, in museum. It is an incredible physical performance. Yeah. He really does embody that that character magnificently. Also, yeah. the, the, the piano playing mm. uh, sections, I was like, I'm looking for the joins. I can't work out how they did this. Is it someone else's body and his head? I don't know how they did it, but it's marvellous. I think he learned to play piano. He learned somewhat, to be the right? best pianist ever. I mean, yeah, uh, it's pretty it's pretty damned impressive if he did. And you know, on last week's show, I kind of lampooned Viggo Mortensen a little bit because I hadn't seen the film at that point. You know, and they sort of, yeah, the, the, I'm Tony Lip from the Braggs. Hey, what are you going to do? It's not an inaccurate impression. It's not inaccurate, but he does bring a depth to he this does. that yeah. I thought that I didn't think was going to be there. Yeah. Uh, and I think the two of them were together brilliantly and both are very very worthy of their Oscar nominations and I will just say that I thought this thing played it like gangbusters yeah. and uh, I thought it was pretty terrific it's probably the best made film that Peter Farrelly has put his name to that's yeah. Not a high bar. It's not controversial, no. Uh, you know, as much as I love Dumb and Dumber and Kingpin <laughs> and there's something about Mary, there, there's always been a slapdash quality to the Farley Brothers mm. movies. Yeah. So I think this is the, the best piece of filmmaking that he's been involved with and uh, really, really good stuff. Four stars then for Green Book. And the final film we're going to discuss this week in depth is Can You Ever Forgive Me? Which is a Marielle Heller's film starring Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant, both, again, Oscar nominated for this. Helen. Yeah, it's a f- fantastic story. So it's basically about uh, Lee Israel, who uh, Melissa McCarthy's character, who was a uh, journalist turned biographer. So she would basically go and interview, you know, Kathleen he- or Catherine Hepburn or whoever, and then write their biography based on, on everything she learned and everything she, she re- researched. She's uh, stuck. She her, her style of books have fallen out of fashion. So she um, basically faked sells a letter that she has from uh, Fanny Bryce um, mm-hmm. to get some cash. And she realises how much money is in these letters and she uses her knowledge to then forge a series of letters from various stars of the past to sell for a few hundred dollars each to basically keep herself afloat with Richard E. Grant as her literally only friend <laughs> um, and soon her sort of accomplice in this in this effort. So that the, when people become suspicious of her, she sends him in to send the letters instead. Um, so that's that's kind of the, the, the hook and the plot of this person who basically just sort of is incredibly difficult, like an incredibly difficult person to be around, like someone who is actively unpleasant to most people she meets. But she's also really on her uppers, really desperate. But it's what she does to kind of, you know, set, basically keep herself afloat that, that puts her apart. Um, and the, the deeper that she gets into it and the more desperate she gets to kind of keep herself going somehow. Mm. And then, of course, you get to a point where you know you're in trouble, but you can't stop because that's all you've got now. So it's a, it's just a really, really fabulous character portrait of both of them because he's the only one who will put up with her. Um, and even then, he has his limits. And I think so the, the relationship is really... It's really wonderful, actually. It's kind of strangely heartwarming to see two quite awful people <laughs> find something in each other that sort of is actually true and, and, and a nugget of goodness. It's a bit like the Empire Podcast, isn't it? It's we were three like awful people, three <laughs> dumpster fires of human beings, mm-hmm. and we found each other through this podcast. I mean, we knew each other before that, but yeah, it was just like a, a passing kind of 
French, years in the yeah. office just years that. in the office you know tolerating each other's presence that sort of stuff sounds fantastic and uh, four stars yeah four stars then for Can You Ever Forgive Me and also out this week is the new film from South Korean filmmaker Lee Chang Dong it is called Burning uh, it is a slow burning psychological thriller that our Ian Freer absolutely loved he called it engrossing and unpredictable and a brilliantly made one-off uh, he gave that four stars. So four stars then for Burning as well, if you would like to check that out this weekend. Uh, because that... Whoa, no, it's not it. It's not? It's not it. Because we have one more guest. Hurrah! I was going to say that's it for this week's Empire Podcast, but we have one more guest. And it is a cracking guest. It is an Oscar-nominated guest. Whoa! It is a ruddy bloody legend. It is Withnell himself. It is Richard E. Grant. Hooray! Who, of course, as you heard, is fantastic in Can You Ever Forgive Me? And do you think he might get the Oscar? I think, I hope so. I mean, Barbara Streisand is, is pulling I for him, as you may have... I think she's not going to win it. Uh, no, she's pulling for him. Oh, right, okay. And she, yeah. she has clout. Um, she, uh, if, you, if you saw on Twitter this week, he revealed a letter that he sent her when he was 14. Yes. Um, and she very kindly replies this week. I mean, it's a little bit belated, but it was adorable anyway. So yeah. um, I, I am now firmly in the Richard E. Grant for an Oscar camp and yeah. the BAFTA as well. Why not? Anyway... We sent Nick Semyon along to talk to him and this was before the Barbara Streisand thing so that that doesn't come up. But uh, otherwise, a really fun interview lies in store. Do please enjoy. We are delighted to welcome Richard e. Grant back to the Empire Podcast. How are you, sir? Thank you very much indeed. Very good, thank you. This has been a pretty good week for you. Unbelievable. Life, <laughs> life-alteringly different to what a usual week in January is like for me. So you posted a video earlier this week yeah. of, of yourself outside the street. You were outside your old flat... In yeah, and outside of Bedford in Notting Hill Gate in Blenheim Crescent, where I lived for two years, paying thirty pounds a week in nineteen eighty-two when I first got here, working as a waiter in Covent Garden. Amazing, and that's uh, a lot has happened since then. Yeah, and, um, my whole life's changed. You are now the Oscar-nominated Richard E. Grant. How does that? I mean, I, I, I'm asking you how it feels, but surreal, I know how it feels. Surreal and completely unbelievable. Every time I wake up or I read something, I or tweet, you know, read something on social media, it's it's just astonishing. I can't really get my head around it. Anyway. Can you talk us through that day, the, the day when the, of the nominations? I didn't sleep very well the night before because even if you try and not let this stuff get to you, because I've won, up until this point, 21 Critics Awards in Canada, the UK and America, there is there's a kind of horse racing derby effect of it that even if you try and ignore it, you... you, you you get sort of saturated with predictions and people messaging you and so you you can't really ignore it anyway so i got a golden globe nomination and a screen actors guild award which uh, not nomination which the awards are this sunday night and i was at the critics choice awards in los angeles last week so when the oscar nominations come you think because so many people have said you know you have a chance for the first time in your life mm. i thought well you have to try and hope that maybe you will be. Anyway, I was sitting in a restaurant with my daughter in Notting Hill that I've been going to for 100 years, and she had the live feed on her iPhone and gave me an earpiece, and she had one. And the, I think the first three names come up, and Timothy Chalamet is not on that list, and you go, if he is not on the list, there's no chance in hell that I have made it to the list. And then my name came up, and we literally looked at each other and just literally both, both of us burst into tears simultaneously, and people around <laughs> us thought we'd had some terrible news. Yeah. And we had to console them and say, no, 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 it's not good news, it's, it's not bad news, it's actually very good news. So we got comped for the food and got wow. given drinks and 
then when I walked back to my car, I was realised that I was parked just around the corner from the bedsit that I'd first rented 36 years ago. And I, my daughter said, you know, go and do a, do a thing about that. Well, mm. you know, put online. So I had no idea that four days later it would have 3.3 million hits. Oh, it's a lovely it's video, just astonishing. It's contagious, though. You're so happy. <laughs> You're so, it's just pure joy. It's lovely. Well, I can't be cynical or, or blasé about it because it's never happened to me before. I've never been nominated for stuff, so it's, it's, it was literally a complete astonishment. No nominations at all. I got nominated Most Promising Newcomer of the Evening Standard Awards in 1987, and I was beaten by two young actresses, Jodie May and Kristen Scott, now Dame Kristen Scott Thomas, mm. who got, who jointly won over me for Best Newcomer. Wow. Well, and I, I think Empire gave, and I wasn't there because I was away working, but they gave Withnail an anniversary award. Yes. Um, well deserved. But yeah. I think that was 20 years after the film had come out. <laughs> So, Better late than never. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I guess you were flooded with text messages and emails. Are you still working your way through replying to all of those? Yeah, I feel like I mean, I've had I've had messages and phone calls and cards. I've had I've heard from people that I literally, I kid you not, have not heard from or seen in forty years. What was that? <laughs> what was the most surprising one? Um, somebody that I was at school with and I last saw when I was fifteen years old, which is how many forty six years ago. That's a big surprise when somebody says, hi, I just see it. And you go, yeah, I don't even know what you look like now. Yeah. I like um, to think that person didn't even realize you were an actor well, until no, just that, now. That is an amazing thing because especially when, you know, I was at school, so many people said to me, ah, you know, you want to be an actor. You haven't a chance in hell, you know, mm. dream on. Mm. So it's, it's satisfying. It's worked out pretty well. And, and going back to your 20s in that, in that one-room bedsit in Notting yeah. Hill Gate, was that a happy time for you and an exciting yeah, time? because I was so excited to be in London. i just turned 25, mm. um, and I worked as a waiter in Tutton's in uh, Brasserie in Co- Covent Garden around, around the corner from the Opera House for seven months, and then got my first acting job, and then you know, started chiseling away at trying to, trying to make a regular living and had set myself a five-year plan that if I didn't get regular or semi-regular work by the time I was 30, I would have to throw in the towel and go back to Swaziland and try and do something else. What would that other... Kind of will be on a corner stool. That's what, <laughs> that was my plan. That's what I always imagined. <laughs> there used to be a regular, re, a regular advert in the stage newspaper which advertises jobs, and it said used to say, boy dancers wanted in Dubai. And this was before Dubai had become the Dubai as we know it now. Um, not that I've ever been. And I thought, oh my God, pineapple beer store or boy dancer in Dubai wanted. And it appeared so regularly. I, I, I thought, well, they're obviously not getting a lot of response to this. Yeah, they sound like interesting career paths. Yeah. yeah I'm thinking of changing now. Um, obviously, it worked out for you before you, were, before you reached 30. Yeah. Um, I had nine months unemployment in 1985, which was decimating to your you know, self-esteem. And I thought, well, I can't, can I really say that I'm still an actor if I've been at work for so long? But an uh, improvised film that I'd done for the BBC called Honesty, Sint and True with Aid Edmondson and Gary Oldman and various other actors, um, many of whom now no longer are actors. When that, I made that at the beginning of that year and when it came out in January 1986, I got new agent Michael Whitehall, father of Jack, and he put me in touch with Mary Selwyn, the late great casting director, who was an absolute legend, and she got me to see Bruce Robinson because they were scrabbling around to try and anybody who could say the lines as he wanted to hear them and could make him laugh. Mm. 
Daniel Day-Lewis having turned down the part. Thank goodness. <laughs> Otherwise, <laughs> I would not be sitting here talking to you today. I know that for a fact. Have you crossed paths with Daniel Day-Lewis? I have. I was in Age of Innocence playing a small part. Um, and on the first day, the generator broke down in New York. We were filming. Scorsese was directing. And I was summoned to his Winnebago. And uh, he, I prostrated myself and I said, Oh, Daniel. I owe you my entire career because you mercifully for me turned down Withnail. And he said, arise, young man. And we got on really well. We spoke for about four hours, waiting with the generator to be fixed. Um, we found out that we knew a huge number of people in common. And I thought, oh, my, my new bestie on this film. And then the next morning, he didn't greet me. And for the, mm. the next three months, he walked past me without ever speaking to me. And I got so paranoid, I asked Michelle Pfeiffer immediately on the second day, had she heard whether I'd done something to offend him? And Winona Ryder was the other person in the makeup fan, and they both said, no, 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 he's in full method, and his character hates your character, so he won't speak to you. And he broke character, because I finished filming a week before the film wrapped, and he broke out of playing Archie's character, and threw his arms around me and said, oh, it's so great to work with you, and I brought a privilege and all of this, and I was completely taken aback because I thought you literally blanked me for three months and now you've gone back to being Daniel again so you, I did have that experience you got the real Daniel for a couple I of hours full Daniel, yeah. <laughs> full Daniel. and he's extraordinary and, and with now and I I mean obviously uh, that beloved cult film uh, obviously there's you know a little bit of common ground with uh, Can You Ever Forgive Me Has, it, has there been a kind of renewed interest in that film do you feel with uh, people wanting to talk to you about it more than usual I think because it's the same actor and there's, even though there's a 30 year gap they're both alcoholics mm. and losers and both deluded in, in what they believe the world owes them and how the world actually treats them so I suppose that's that's almost inevitable that um, there would be, you know, comparisons between the two. But I mean, he was, Withnail is such an entitled, selfish, arrogant, misanthropic character. Whereas Jack Hawk in Can You Ever Forgive Me is so willing to help or, you know, Labrador-like, will lick anybody into submission for some booze, a bonk or a bed, um, that... Uh, he was. He felt much more humane and connected to the real world rather than Withnail, who <laughs> I think decreed himself lofty and above all the common herd, if you like. Mm. Oh, Jack is a lovable character. Um, when you first, and I also do get to wear a lot of long coats. You get some in great, both films. You get some great <laughs> coats. Did you get to keep any of those coats? I got to keep the Withnail one, and I sold it at auction uh, 20 years ago to raise funds for the school that I went to in Swaziland. Um, and Chris Evans, who I saw this morning, bought it, and he gave me back the my original shooting script with all my drawings and sketches and notes as a keepsake because he bought that at auction as well. So I was very touched to have that back because it's been a real talisman in my life. Wow, just this morning? Yeah. Wow. So I guess that has brought back a flood of memories. Yeah, because it's extraordinary. When I opened up the script and I smelt it and <sighs> saw all the scribblings and things that I'd done, if you told me, you know, 32 years later that I would be sitting here talking to Empire magazine about having an Oscar nomination, it's just, it's, it's beyond the realm of any possibility that I could possibly have had, really. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the smell of the script. I know you're a very sensory guy. Yeah. What did that? What did that smell bring back? Like, was there a specific uh, kind of memory? Yeah. Or? Just you just instantly went back to 1986. Mm. 
Don't smell a bit. Summer of 86. <laughs> That's what it smells like. And uh, so, so coming back to Can You Ever Forgive Me, when that, when that script arrived, mm-hmm. what was your immediate reaction to it? Did you think this is... I was told I had 24 hours to read it. So I thought it was a Mission Impossible situation that it was going to... Um, sure, Mission Impossible there. Um, so Sean Connery, canaring <laughs> through my old teeth. Um, I saw that it was Melissa McCarthy, who obviously knew and loved, n- never met her, of course, and Nicole Hofsenner and Jeff Whitty, who I recognise as writers, him especially from Avenue Q, the musical, and Marielle Heller, who directed Diary of a Teenage Girl, which was, I thought was so extraordinarily well done. So when I started reading it, I, I knew immediately there was a true story, so stranger than fiction, and within about five pages it was very clear that it was very sharply written, well-observed, and just conjured up a kind of now-gone literary bohemia and shabby-edged bookshop, uh, bookshop and bar road movie-type atmosphere of the early 90s in New York, and I was struck by the parallels with John Schlesinger's amazing movie, Midnight Cowboy, yeah. of these two oddball characters that John Voight and Dustin Hoffman played so extraordinarily well, meeting and forming this strange, platonic, interdependent relationship in New York. So, and the fact that he started... When I realised at the end of the story that the character that I was offered, Jack Hawk, was HIV positive and dying of AIDS, it then... I understood the kind of motor and energy that this guy had in the story of living every day as though it was his last day because it probably could have been his last day. So if he gets some money off some shady Coke deal, he had to spend it and have a good time. And I think that's, you know, I wish I could live my life like that. Kind of, kind of an impulsive... Uh, hedonist. Hedonist. Yeah. Yeah. And a Labrador. Out for a good time. I, I love that parallel with a Labrador. Did that yeah. occur to you when you were reading the script? Oh, yeah, th- because I, was, I think pro- probably, probably because I, I grew up in Africa, I've always tried to understand any human being that I meet for the first time in animal terms. So I thought, well, what kind of animal is this? And he is as Labrador to Lee Israel stroke Melissa McCarthy's porcupine quilled curmudgeon as possible. And I thought, well... Get a Labrador and a porcupine together in one movie. It doesn't really jump out as being the perfect combination, but there is a persistence of Labradors wanting to be loved and, you know, just never giving up for getting the poor out. I don't know. I think that's the next Pixar movie. Labrador and a porcupine team up. Okay. I'm not going to ask what animal you think I am. Um, okay. I probably don't want to know. Okay. <laughs> um, talking of animals, there's an amazing cat performance in this, in this film. And I, I have read... An interview in which that cat was described as the Marlon Brando of cats. It is the Marlon Brando of cats because in the scene where Melissa McCarthy is taking her sick cat, which this cat obviously wasn't, to a vet because it's terminally ill, um, it even sneezed twice during a during you know, a scene. And when she was feeding it shrimp on a sofa sitting next to me uh, in a scene, you know, I've had cats. I know that no matter how well trained they are, to get them to a, look poorly, and then turn their noses up when shrimp or any food of that delicacy is put in front of their nose. To turn away with total disinterest, I was, we were all pretty gobsmacked by that. It wasn't just a fluke. It wasn't, wasn't one take. It was more than that. So, yes, the Marlon Brando of cats. That's great description. Have you had the opposite experience? They say never work with uh, children oh, or animals. Yes. Have, you, have you worked with Oh, them? yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I did, I did a movie called Jack and Sarah where we worked with twin infants mm. and one was always so grumpy and the other one was more conducive and didn't, didn't um, yow quite so much. And, uh, but because of the strict working hours, um, we needed more scenes of a quiet baby than we needed ones when the baby was yelling its lungs out. So that was a challenge. I revisited uh, Hudson Hawk recently, and there's a there's a dog, a memorable dog performance in that. Bunny, um, Bunny, Bunny the Bulbul. dog. Yeah, yeah. And Sandra Bernhardt discovered, to her chagrin, great annoyance that having arrived in Rome earlier than the rest of everybody else to start shooting this film in 1990, the summer of, which was incredibly hot, like 42 degrees in Rome, that the so-called dog trainer was a complete amateur shyster in a tracksuit with all the fancy gubbins. <laughs> And that Bunny Ball Ball, the dog, was stone deaf. So all its instructions went for a burden. And she didn't realise this until quite far in. And uh, you will know from having seen Sandra Bernhardt in King of Comedy that she is not somebody that is easily placated. When Sandra is angry, it's um, <laughs> Godzilla proportions of anger. So it was hilarious. So they eventually had to have a... You know, fake dog put on a string and yanked across the floor. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, I, I had forgotten that the dog goes out the window at the end of the movie. Yeah, which is a, a gleefully. <laughs> yeah. That was a rewrite by Sandra. Yeah. <laughs> um, to restrain Sandra from throwing the trainer out of the window with the dog. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you've you've talked and written a lot about Hudson Hawk, but I am fascinated by that. Endlessly fascinated by that film. Why? Its existence. Why? It's just so strange. Why? Why? Um, Why? Is, is, that, is that something that you still kind of enjoy telling stories about? Um, if you ask, but I usually, anybody who, yeah. who liked that movie, I've always assumed that they are on some kind of intravenous drugs, and they usually are. Oh, I didn't say I liked it. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fascinated by it, but um, it's... No, it's, it's a great story of Hollywood hubris. Yeah. Um, are those memories still quite vivid? Uh, oh, very vivid, yes. In? Yeah. Is there one day in particular on that, on that set that was the most kind of surreal? Oh, the most surreal. Well, yes, uh, being in Hungary and having shot the entire scene in the morning without our leading actor, Bruce Willis, and then finding out when he did come to work in the afternoon that everything we'd shot in the morning, he decided to reshoot. So we then did all his close-ups, mm. re-blocked the whole scene... And then as soon as he was finished, he left. Mm. And we then had, Sandra and I, had a Hungarian script supervisor who spoke about four words of English mm. reading Bruce's dialogue to us. So reacting to somebody going, well, it was not the most conducive to, you know, the Stanislavski method acting moments that we had aspired to. Yes, anyway. I can imagine not. I mean that that book with nails is so brilliant, and Thank I reread you. it. Recently. I've read it several times. Um, I know you. you've written the Wawa Diaries as well. Thank it's you. another good one. Um, I mean, there's there's got to be at least another book. Um, <laughs> I mean, you must get asked this all the time. Like, where is the second volume of your kind of Hollywood? You know, is is it something that now you would feel too kind of worried about? You know, offending people, or how do you feel about doing another? kind of chronicle because now you've got the you know you've got a great new chapter for it yes i suppose this this would be a good yes a good um exclamation point uh, ending of a, a second volume yep well why not you you're considering it perhaps um, i haven't considered it really <laughs> but as you've now brought it up i i will do in case i fall on really hard times i think hmm better 
let's get these out there into the ether. But I, does anybody buy books anymore? I don't oh, know. I think so. They might buy an audio version of it. That would be great. Another another film I have to ask you about is L.A. Story. Yes. I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, Lifelong um, Friendship is a result. Well, 30-year friendship with uh, Steve Martin. And I love the uh, the story about you guys communicating entirely via faxes. Yeah, we well, we'd, yeah, see each other whenever he's here or I'm there. But um, And I've always stayed at his house. But he, he, unbeknownst to me, collected all of my faxes and then printed out all of our subsequent email correspondence over 30 years. So wow. he apparently sort of got an Encyclopedia Britannica thick volume of stuff, which you talk about worry about offending people. It is so undiluted, uncensored that I think that if they ever had to make it into the light of day outside of his um, Fort Knox study, I would be in probably a lot of trouble. Because, you know, it's one of those things that you say things to people that you're great friends with that you may change your mind the next day. But of course, if you read that in print, then you might be offended. Do you feel so. a bit of extra pressure writing an email to him knowing it's going to end up in a hardback kind of bound? No, because he is he is an incredibly discreet and private man. So I think that's my guarantee. Yeah. <laughs> and so you've kept up with him over the years. Yeah. And that was the beginning of it. Yeah. yeah I, I won the Critics New York Film Critics Circle Award last two Mondays ago. And he was he was asked to give it to me because that was one, one occasion where you are told in advance that you've won. And... Uh, he gave me this eulogy up front that, you know, my daughter said, that's the kind of thing that you usually, that people only say when you're dead. And I had the embarrassment but sheer delight as well of hearing me say these things in public uh, to my face. So that was an amazing moment. That's great. And, I mean, LA Story is still such a sharp satire of, of Los Angeles and how weird that whole place is. I mean, now that you have had many decades of being in this industry, is it yeah. still strange to you, Hollywood? Is it still, oh, yeah. do you still kind of... Oh, it's still strange. Yeah. yeah. It's not unlike anywhere else. I think because more unlike anywhere else, it, it's, it seems that the whole focus of the city is to do with movie making and fame and celebrity in a way that no other city city is. You know, so the focus of it is particular to that. And Paris about- has fashion, we have our humour yeah. and everything else and Brexit shenanigans. Yeah. But LA is the movie industry. And the award circuit. Obviously. And the award circuit so is now the epicentre of that. So now you've been drawn into that. Yeah. What is that like? Because like, you did the Golden Globes. Well, nobody, nobody warns you that, well, certainly nobody warned me because this movie premiered at the Telluride Film Festival in early September, five months ago. And within two hours of the screening at four o'clock in the afternoon, Variety and Hollywood Reporter gave it these staggeringly positive reviews. Mm. And from then onwards, I have been essentially on an awards publicity junket circuit in various cities not earning any money i'm not seeing the blues about that but you get royally treated and flown everywhere and put up in you know wonderful accommodation but i've been talking about this movie for five months which took 26 days to shoot so that is surreal because you go well when does it stop yeah when does it stop and then the more nominations it gets the more you have to kind of fan dance about it because the, it accrues more interest so it feels like this rolling stone that you know eventually it'll finally st- i thought it would stop this week with without an oscar nomination but now that that has happened it's suddenly it feels like it's 
exploded rather than imploded, and it's now hurtling towards the 24th of February, yeah. you know, as it opens in other countries around the world. So I've never had experience of that before. And I saw Colin Firth the other night at a party, and he said, he said, how are you dealing with this? And I said, well, it's never happened to me before. So, you know, he's had lots of these awards. Um, and he said that it was about seven months that he spent on the King's Speech. Mm. So by the time he got his, you know, the, the, the big award of them all, he said he was just completely worn out. Yeah, I guess you get numb to it over yeah. time a little bit. So this is your first time going to the Oscars, you've never been... First as... time at the Oscars, first time at the Screen Actors Guild, first time at the Golden Globes, and first time as a nominee for the BAFTAs. Have you been prepared for it by people you know who have been? Obviously Steve Martin's hosted it a bunch of times. Has anyone... No, because you... nothing really... Prepared. Oh, the, uh, I was at the Golden Globes at a table with Emily Blunt, Rob Marshall... Ben Falcone, Melissa McCarthy, and Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, you know, and to my over my shoulder was Charlize Theron and Denzel Washington, and behind me was Anne Hathaway and Jessica Chastain. And you know, wherever you look, it is this surreal Madame de Swords come to life moment where you go, the most disparate group of people that may never be cast in the same movie together are sitting having dinner or talking or schmoozing, and Spike yeah. Lee sort of waving, going, "Hey, man, you know, keep at it." So you you have this weird sort of quasi sense of friendship or kinship when you keep seeing the same people at the same awards ceremonies uh, and it's like having brief membership it seems to me like the A-list fame club yeah. and you know that it's very temporary or well, that's certainly how it seems to me yeah. um, and as Emily Blunt pointed out when people, you know, some people leant over and said, oh, you know, I'm so sorry you didn't win the Golden Globe. And it was absolutely clear that we all knew Mahershala Ali was going to win because he's won everything. So she said, well, if you think about it, if there are 20 nominated categories and five in each, that's 100 people, mm. of which only 20 are going to go home tonight as winners. Mm. The other 80 of us, as you know, we're all fellow nominees, so yeah. if we're losers, it's pretty good company to be losers amongst. Yeah, you're that was a very smart way of looking at it. That's a good perspective. Well, obviously, um, you know, the, the Oscar nomination is very exciting. It's not the only exciting thing that's happened to you um, recently. Uh, you are in a new Star Wars film. The Star Wars film. You were in the, the end, Star Wars The film. end of the Star Wars, yeah. Now how the does, final that, Star how Wars does that film. feel? I could not believe it. If you told me, you know, 41 years ago when I was a 20-year-old drama student um, in Africa that 41 years later... I, the movie that I'd just gone to see and was so excited and thrilled to be thrust into outer space, Star Wars land, um, Star Wars world, that I would be in the final one directed by J.J. Abrams, I would have said, you need you, you need locking up. You're completely deluded. So the fact that this all happened in this year is, yeah, I know that it'll. I'll never have this the like of this ever again. Yeah. So are I'm you enjoying sure it for a, the ride as long as it lasts. Are you sure you haven't found a genie recently? I'm wondering what your third wish is going <laughs> to manifest as. But it's amazing. Oh, it's, amazing. You know, it's richly deserved. And um, Thank you. Can you say anything about your Star Wars experience? Yes, it comes out on the 19th of December. <laughs> Thank you, Richard. And I play... And the plot is... And you're given the script... You're given the script pages on the day that you work and you have to sign for them and sign them back out again at the end of the day. Okay. And the you can read the whole script in a conference room that has guards outside the door, closed circuit cameras, and it's printed on crimson paper so you can't photograph it. And you also wear a cloak between 
where you get dressed and made up and then taken in a um, a little golf cart to the set so that wow. the drones or anybody passing by can't snap who it is. And then there are plain clothes and then visible security marked people on the vast sets so that if somebody is looking at their phone and it goes into a, I'm going to take a photo position, hands from the dark appear to um, stop that taking place. So at least Fort Knox locked down. But everybody understands that that's the deal because nobody wants to get fired. Is that the first uh, production you've been on that has had, Yeah, I mean, obviously that level of security. Only, only, only one as well. So yeah. uh, you know, I can't imagine that there would be that kind of scrutiny or lockdown on any other kind of movie. But I understand that, you know, people are... There are people that are absolutely fanatical about it. So any information is of interest. I mean, how many people are you allowed to talk to? Can you talk to Well, I haven't members? told my wife or, fa- or my daughter the name of the character that I'm playing. Wow. So that is, and I've honoured that, because I was fearful that if I told them, <laughs> my wife might just suddenly be in the supermarket and say to somebody, oh, yes, he's, um, <clears throat> and uh, then I get fired. So no, Gosh. I haven't. Are you, so you're good at keeping secrets. I'm terrible at keeping secrets. So I wouldn't be able to keep anything secret. Well, if you knew that you were going to be fired mm. from Star Wars, I think you would keep a secret, don't Motivator. you? Motivator, yeah. 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 And finally, um, something else you've been involved in, Game of Thrones. Yes, a few which, episodes of that. Which I mean, you, you are in everything. <laughs> every, every pop culture phenomenon. Um, how well, briefly. I know briefly, yeah. but still part of it. Yeah, still um, part of it. That's true. And was that an exciting thing to, to kind of... Uh, yeah, because, you know, you talk about the effect that Withnell's had on my whole life. The irony of playing an out-of-work actor has led to almost without exception every job I've had subsequently. And the two writers and creators of the you know, TV series, not the original books, had were Withnell fans. And so that is the motivation and the reason that they got Nina Gold, the casting director, to get me to play this bitter and twisted old travelling actor, Isambaro, in some episodes of it. Amazing. I mean, it all comes back to with now. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much, Richard. I'll let you get back to reading the shooting script. Thank and now you we very much. That. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Bye-bye. And that was Richard E. Grant talking to Nick DeSemlin, and that is it for this week's bumper, jam-packed Empire podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun when we'll be joined by... Who? Not going to tell you. Oh, because it's the live It's live. Pod. It's a surprise. It's the live show. I do know. I do know who we're going to be joined by. Unlike previous live shows, <laughs> the guests are locked in. Is it's it not going to be panic. That is a relief because, honestly, he's not wrong. There have been times when we haven't known until the day of the show who <laughs> was going to be joining yep. us. So this is wonderful news. I am yes. very pleased. I won't say who they are. You'll find out next week when we do the podcast. Hooray! Hooray. Are you guys going to be there? I mean, I'll we'll see. Maybe. I might be washing my hair. Don't get stuck in traffic. Ticket refunds are available <laughs> <laughs> if you're furious about this. Uh, but that's going to be a lot of fun. That's going to be out as ever next Friday, and we're really, really looking forward to it. It's going to be at the King's Place. Uh, tickets are sold out, uh, but again, look out on the day. There may be returns on the day at the box office, and we might have one or two that we might be giving away on Twitter. Maybe. But that's it. Until then, until we meet again, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from Helen O'Hara. Toodaloo. It is goodbye from James Dyer. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. You know, though, Helen, I never really wanted to be a podcast host. You didn't? No. What did you want to be? I wanted to be a lumberjack.
leaping from tree to tree as they float down the mighty rivers of British Columbia with my best girl by my side, the larch, the pine, the giant redwood. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I see. 